Dallas world in sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. One of those world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir. Come on, tell you, Trebiamia, CA, Vumenji, my pal, Wendell Wallace. K Pasa, mi amigos. I hope everybody is doing well. Konishiwa, shalom, everybody who's listening to the podcast. What is up? What is happening? I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you're feeling great. I hope that you're doing what you need to do to make this better place, make this place a better place to be in. I hope that you're having those uncomfortable conversations about what we need to do to learn, to listen, to educate to grow as one as together in human unity in harmony and peace and love togetherness to make this world to make this community to make this block to make this neighborhood to make everything in the world today a better place to be and if not for us for our children for their children for their children so this world can be around long after we're six feet under as a community as a generation or whatever so man let's go ahead and start this podcast it's the end of an era or an era in Washington professional football, in the history of the Washington professional football team, as you heard at the beginning after my intro, the fight song that will be no more, no more. Hail to the Washington football team. It's going to officially change its nickname. One source reported on Saturday night has been widely 
expected that Washington would change his name and the announcement of a new name would come soon. I don't know exactly what that name is going to be. I wish it was the Red Tails, but uh, we'll exactly see what happens. It's, I don't know if it was stunning. It's not really stunning because we kind of saw the groundswell of this moving. It's been going on in terms of the Washington football team wanting, needing to change his names. People have been putting pressure on the football team, Daniel Snyder, the owner, the majority owner of the uh, Washington football team to change his name. So for the most part, this is not something that's out of the blue. This is not something that's surprising, but to actually go ahead and to make plans to get it done for a fellow Washingtonian who was born and raised in Silver Spring, Maryland, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, and was so connected with the football team and knowing the relationship that the Washington professional football team has with the community. It's it's unbelievable, man. When you think about the importance of that nickname in that team, the professional football team is that synonymous and woven into the fabric of the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And when I say Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, we're, of course, talking about Washington, D.C., but those metropolitan areas, we're speaking about Montgomery County, we're speaking about P.G. County, Anne Arundel County, Laurel County, all of these communities in Maryland, Northern Virginia. I mean, that name, that team is as synonymous, is as connected and woven into the fabric of the area as the monuments, the White House, the museums. You could even say that, you know what? The Washington football team, look, we're not the Chicago Bears. We're not the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're not a franchise like the Green Bay Packers where whether you go to Arizona, whether you go to the West Coast, whether you go to the East Coast, whether you go to down South. I mean, we ain't the Dallas Cowboys. We ain't America team. We ain't the Pittsburgh Steelers. You don't go over to Canada. You don't go across the pond and go over to England. You don't go all over the world and you'll see people who enjoy the NFL. You don't go over to London, England. You don't go to those places and you'll see Washington professional football team paraphernalia being worn for the most part at these games. When you're speaking about teams, when you're speaking about franchises that are the superstars, that are the legendary franchise of the the NFL, which people who might not even know anything about the game of American football, they know who the Dallas Cowboys are. They know who the Pittsburgh Steelers are. They know who the Green Bay Packers are. They know these franchises. Washington's football team is nothing like that. As far as, you know, 2020, the year 2020, and even when I was growing up, for the most part now, When I was growing up, you had the Washington metropolitan area who was in love with the football team. Then you had maybe South Carolina. You had North Carolina because when I was growing up back in the day, you didn't have the Charlotte, uh, the Carolina Panthers. You didn't have any other professional football team between the Atlanta Falcons and moving up toward the Washington football team. So for the most part, South Carolina and North Carolina claim the Washington football team as their own. But for the most part, we're not just a historic franchise, even though we've been around for over 90 years, whether it be in Boston or in D.C. in the uh, in the National Football League. So when we speak about the monuments, when we speak about the Lincoln Memorial, when we speak about the White House, when we speak about the Air and Space Museum, when we speak about all of these things in D.C. where people are people who are who don't live in D.C., When you speak of that, that's what they think about. They think about the government buildings. They think about the White House. They think about the monuments and all those things. Those are for the tourists, for the most part. Living there, yeah, when you were young and you were in elementary school, yeah, you took that tour of the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, and you went to the Air and Space Museum. You know, when you're young, you learn the history for the most part. But 
It's almost like living out here in Vegas. People who live in Vegas, they're not tied to, they don't have anything to do with the strip. None, nothing whatsoever. We don't care about the strip. We don't go to the strip. We try to avoid the strip at all possibilities. We hate that strip. That's for the tourists. That's for tourists to come and spend their money. We have our own little pockets of entertainment in terms of going downtown in Vegas or going to the local casinos if we want to play blackjack, if we want to watch a show, if we want to eat at a restaurant, if we want to play on the video poker machines or play poker itself. We have different areas in Vegas where we can go. But for the most part, living in Vegas ain't going down to the strip 24 hours a day. We're not consumed by what we can do to go down to the strip. We have our lives, we have our nine to five jobs, we have our children, we have our wives, we have our everyday, just like anybody else in any city. The strip is just there just to make sure that uh, the schools can be built, that the roads can be taken care of, that uh, all those other things. So we don't deal anything with the strip. And the same thing living in the Washington, D.C. area. When you live in that area, we ain't going down to the monuments, we ain't going downtown, we ain't going to the tour guides of the... White House and all those things, those are for the tourists. We don't care about that. But when we're speaking about the Washington professional football team, as I like to call them, the Snyder skins, the three and 13 skins, the inept skins, the dumb skins, the wife Bruce Allen still have a job skins. They thank God Daniel Snyder finally fired Bruce Allen skins. The let's go chase young. We can get it done skins. And we're going to be naming all these names until we can finally get a official name. The Ron Rivera skins. The Jack Del Rio, let's help our defense skins. The Dwayne Haskins need to get better or we're going to be 3-13 and 13 again skins. They find somebody who can build a talent base because we have done skins. That team is synonymous with the locals. That team is our team. That's the team that we identify, even more than what many people identify when they think about Washington, D.C., in terms of the tourist attractions that we go to. Same thing as when you go to L.A. People who live in L.A., man, they ain't going down to Hollywood. They ain't going down to the Walk of Fame and doing all that bullshit that the terrorists, that the uh, tourists do. Fuck that. No way. So it's the same thing with the uh, Washington football team in regards to how important, how part of the family that football team is, especially if you're speaking about a cosmopolitan area and city like Washington, D.C., this ain't something to where, you know, as soon as you get your degree, as soon as you reach a certain age, you're trying to get the hell out of there. I mean, Washington, D.C. is diverse enough, it's great enough, it's fantastic enough, it's big enough to where you can live your entire life. You can raise your children. As I mentioned before, Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, Maryland, the area where I grew up, the best place to live, the best place to grow, grow up, and the best place to raise your kids and your families. Even now. I mean, before, but Montgomery County used to be the shit. Now, all of a sudden, now PG County, where back in the day when I was growing up, I mean, fuck PG County. You ain't going down there. I mean, you ain't going down to Fort Washington and all them places. You ain't going down to them, them joints. Now, all of a sudden, we see people who I grew up with in Montgomery County. They're living in Prince George's County and living large, living great, living fantastic. Great schools, great communities. That wasn't the case for the most part when I was growing up. So there's just that diversity. You don't have to be stuck. Washington, D.C. is not a place like Baltimore, Maryland. It's not a place like Wilmington, Delaware. It's not a place like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's not one of those places where 
you know, is, is small enough to where, and it's insignificant enough when you're speaking about those cities in terms of Washington, D.C., or Los Angeles, California, or Chicago, Illinois, or New York City, one of them places where, you know, you want to stay in those places where you grew up. You want to stay there. You want to live there. You want to raise your children there. I don't know why anybody would want to live and raise their children in New York City, especially after David Dinkins got uh, left at the mayor. Yeah! But for the most part, that's a shout-out to Jerome, but for the most part, Baltimore, Wilmington, Delaware, them places, I mean, you know, you're kind of stuck there. You're born there, you grow up there, you have children there, and it's the same old shit. When you live in a place like Washington, D.C., you can be born in Northern Virginia and live in Montgomery County. You can be born in Montgomery County and live in Arundel County and still enjoy the same cosmopolitan, fantastic lifestyle without ever leaving to go somewhere else. So my whole point of this is, how the fuck do I know? My whole point of this is the fact that the football team gets woven into our fabric. And because we live there, and because we've lived our whole life there, we pass that down to our children and their children's children, that's how important the team is as far as the Washington football team is concerned. So for Daniel Snyder... To go ahead and do this. I remember, man, that guy was talking about, he was adamant about never changing the nickname. And that's the reason why. Daniel Snyder was a guy who grew up in um, the D.C. area. He was a guy who cheered for the football team. He was a guy who was part of the last great dynasty as far as the Washington football team is concerned. Really the last great dynasty or really great success of any sports franchise in the Washington, D.C. area for a period of time. We'll see what the Washington Nationals do for baseball. But for the most part, that 1982, from 1982 to 1991, Washington professional football team, I mean, he was there for that. He was there for the Super Bowl championships. He was there for Doug Williams being the first black quarterback to play and be great in a uh, Super Bowl game. He was there for the Joe Gibbs era. He was there for all that. So for him, when he bought the team, I mean, he wasn't just some guy looking to buy the team so he could extend his portfolio. This wasn't a guy who bought the team because, you know, this was a chance for him to make money as far as the main reasons why he bought the team. Daniel Snyder bought the team first and foremost, in my opinion, is because he was a fan. And it would be a dream if he couldn't play for the Washington professional football team that he could sure go ahead and some way somehow own it or some way somehow be a part of it. And if he can't be doing it by playing, then hell, I might as well buy the damn team, right? So he was very adamant all the time about, you know what, this is a situation where I grew up in the D.C. area. I grew up as a huge football fan. I got indoctrinated by what this football team meant to the area. And me still being here and now owning this team, I'm going to do everything I can to preserve and grow that historical franchise. So the fact that you are asking me, the fact that you are demanding me this is Daniel Snyder, I'm guest speaking. You're talking about me being the person, being that guy who's going to take that nickname away from this football team, basically take its identity. It would be the same as asking someone from Montreal and take away the name Canadians from the uh, Mont Montreal hockey team. Because you know what, um, Canadians are upset that they're being identified just in Montreal, where Canadians are like, we're more than just Montreal, we're Quebec, we're Vancouver, we're Calgary, we're Winnipeg, why are you just naming the Canadians just in Montreal? We're going to protest, we're going to uh, demand that the Canadians, Montreal Canadians, change their name. For Daniel Snyder, it's like that. For Daniel Snyder, that nickname is just as strong in terms of his feelings and his passions about it, because again, he grew up here. 
So for him to take that nickname off of the Washington football team would be the same as the New York Yankees taking Yankees off of their baseball team. It would be the same as the Chicago Bears taking the name Bears off of their football team. It would be the same as the Giants or the Packers or the, the, the Green Bay franchise taking the name Packers off of their team or the... Chicago Bears taking that nickname, Bears, off their team because, you know, Peter and the wildlife get upset because why are you exploiting the, why are you exploiting the Bears by having it as a uh, football, a football nickname? You know, it's one of those things. I mean, for a lot of us here still living in the D.C. area, I'm out here in Vegas, but I always consider Washington, D.C. my home. My home is Washington, D.C. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. It'll be that way if I live to be 500 years old and all the rest of my time is being spent in Las Vegas. I'll always consider I'll always consider the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area my home, even though I haven't lived there in over, what, 20-something years. When I die, when I'm gone, you bury me somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area, baby. Don't bury me anywhere else. Whatever happens to me in my life, wherever I go, whether I stay in Vegas or, I don't know, go to the moon or Mars to live out my final years. I want to be buried. I want my remains. I want my bones. If I'm going to be buried somewhere, bury me in the Washington, D.C. area, even if it's a landfill. No, if there's nobody around, since I don't have any kids or loved ones or anything like that, I can put somewhere in my will. If I don't have enough money to uh, put me in a ground somewhere, put me in the landfill and put me in the landfill in Montgomery County, Maryland. That'll, that'll be good enough for me. But uh, yeah, so those are the type of passions and those are the type of feelings, you know, in terms of the Washington D.C. area and as far as sports is concerned and everything else. The Washington football team is just as synonymous with that for us. So, man, it's a, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Snyder talking about, you know, he told what he told the USA Today in 2013. Put it in caps. That's what he said. Put this shit in caps. He would never make such a move as to change the nicknames. Again, it's like, man, you're going to tell me one of the most historical franchises in sports in his mind, and you're going to ask me, you're going to tell me that I have to be that guy that's going to change the name? I'm going down in the history books as the guy that's going to change that name? I'm not going to be, uh-uh. don't, don't, don't do me, don't put me in the same, in the same wing of sports of people who despise the owner. Don't put me in the same class as Jim Ursay, his feelings in terms of the Baltimore uh, community what their feelings are about Jim Mercer if you speak to a certain generation because he moved the team, the uh, Baltimore Colts, he moved them to uh, Indianapolis. Don't put me, as far as Daniel Snyder is concerned, in the same vein as, say, someone like an Art Modell for what he did with the Cleveland Browns. Don't put me in the same vein as Walter O'Malley did with the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to the Los Angeles uh, area. For baseball, Daniel Snyder's like, don't put me in that group by saying that, yeah, when people 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now talk about why are we calling the Washington football team the Red Tails or the Warriors or the Monuments or whatever the new name is, why did we change that name from what we knew as the Washington, and I'll say this name just for the purpose of this conversation. Why did we change that historical name Washington Redskins to the Washington Monuments or the Washington Senators or to the Washington whatever and Red Tails or whatever new name? And their moms and their dads or their grandparents are going to say, well, the under Daniel Snyder, it was his decision. That damn Daniel Snyder, I mean, I grew up 
lovingly Washington Blightskins. I just loved them and this, that, and the other. They were part of my childhood. They were part of my great memories. They were part of me growing up to be uh, a big fan of the team and growing up for me to be a big football fan. And I live and die. I have all my Washington old Redskins gear in the closet in terms of the hats and the shirts and my memories and the everything. But no, 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 no. Daniel Snyder had to capitulate and change the name because, you know, these goddamn liberals... These snowflakes, oh, they're so butthurt. Oh, we can't go ahead. We have, we can't, we can't offend the Native Americans. I saw Rush Limbaugh. I heard Rush Limbaugh. I heard Michael Savage. I heard Tucker Carlson. I heard Laura Ingram. I heard Michael Savage. I heard Bill O'Reilly. I heard these guys bring on some Indian, some Native American guy who was talking about, oh no, Redskins are cool. That's what, we're, we're good with that. We're wonderful with that. But these damn Democrats, these damn progressives, but these damn liberals, they had to go ahead and change the name and rip out our heritage. You know, these motherfuckers back in the day. First they took the Confederate flag, and then they took down all the monuments of these generals in the Civil War who committed treason. But that's okay. So, you know, these little snowflake liberals who want to go ahead and acquiesce and appease the blacks and appease the Hispanics, all those illegals. And appease those Asians who brought the China flu over here. You know them damn people. Well, our owner of our football team, Daniel Snyder, he was a guy who, who, you know, gave in, caved in to the liberals. And now that's the reason why, son, daughter, you can no longer enjoy the Washington football team like we enjoyed it growing up because of those great memories as them, as that team being the Washington Redskins. It is no more. So Daniel Snyder, that was Daniel Snyder's attitude right there. I'm not going to be that guy. You hear a certain generation talk about Walter O'Malley moving the Brooklyn Dodgers to the West Coast. I don't even know if those folks are even still around anymore. It happened so long ago. But for a long time, man, ask Dick Schapp, the legendary writer. I mean, it was a, you know, I mean, he was, Walter O'Malley was vilified. I mean, ask those in Cleveland about Art Modell and the, anger and the venom and the hatred that a good portion of Cleveland, Ohio and the surrounding area have for Martin Modell. It is high. Ask a certain generation of people about Jim Irsay, how he took the Baltimore Colts organization, packed them up in a moving van in the middle of the night and moved them over to Indianapolis. Ask a certain generation of Baltimore Colts fans about Jim Irsay and hear the anger and hear the ire and hear the venom and hear the just downright hatred. I mean, Daniel Snyder's like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. But you know what? You have to do the right thing. Daniel Snyder will do the right thing. And, and you know, I'll, I'll explain why he is uh, kicking and screaming and, you know, the threats to change that, uh, change the nickname of that team doesn't make him a hero. Doesn't make him a hero at all. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I guess, I don't know about, they're going to change the logo. The logo of the uh, team of an, of an American Indian chief was designated by the Native Americans in 1971. That's going to be going away. The team, I don't know if it's going to retain the franchise's use of burgundy and gold as colors. So as I mentioned before, man, the importance and the meaning, it's just well. It is just well. For those who grew up and are listening to this podcast in the D.C. area, I mean, really, did you ever think this day would happen? Because I didn't. I really didn't. 
the meaning and the relationship that this team has with its residents, I'm putting it up there as one of the strongest in terms of its relationships and its relevance and its importance to the community. I'm putting it right up there, man, as far as what the Washington football team brings to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I'm putting it right up there with the Dallas Cowboys, what they mean to the city of Dallas, what, what the Major League Baseball St. Louis Cardinals mean to the surrounding areas of St. Louis, what the Kansas City Chiefs mean to Kansas City, Missouri, what, again, the Baltimore Colts, now Baltimore Ravens, mean to the city of Baltimore, what the Cleveland Browns mean to the city of Cleveland, what the Portland Trailblazers or the Utah Jazz mean to their communities, what the Montreal Canadiens or the Edmonton Oilers, a lot of the franchises in the National Hockey League in terms of the Canadian cities, maybe not Toronto now that the they have a baseball team and they have a basketball team, especially a basketball team with the defending NBA champions. And we see the growth and the love of basketball in the city and surrounding areas of Toronto. But man, you take a look at it. You take a look at a situation in cities like Montreal, how they're so attached, how they're so ingrained, how much they love their hockey team. You're speaking about the Calgary Flames. We're speaking about the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, heaven's sake alive. Did you see that 30 for 30 on ESPN where they were talking about when Wayne Gretzky was traded, how they treated the owner, how they thought about what Bruce Pocklington or whatever that guy's name was, how much they hated that guy because of the strong relationship that the Edmonton community has with that hockey team. So we're speaking about the Washington football team having that same type of relationship. It's right up there in terms of what it means. I mean, sports-wise, you really think about it. I mean, we're a big city. We're a cosmopolitan city. But in terms of its sports, we ain't New York City. We ain't Chicago. Yeah, we even... I guess we're more... I mean, you know, the, you have, I was going to say L.A. The L.A. had the Dodgers and the Angels and the Kings. and I'm sorry, the, um, the L.A. Kings and the Anaheim Ducks. And, you know, you have the four sports and you have two franchises in each sport. But, you know, as far as, I don't know, as far as the, as far as the, 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 the uh, relationship that they have, I don't think it's as strong because L.A. is so big and you have so many people from all over the country, all over the world going to live in those areas that, uh, you know, plus the upheaval of not having an NFL football squad in the city for for decades and really having to steal the Oakland Raiders to come back and at one time. So I, I, don't, I don't know, man, but when you think about the Washington metropolitan area is not what we call a, you know, a crazy sports type of city or town. You know, we have the football team when I was growing up. We had the football team. Again, we have the Georgetown basketball team, the Maryland basketball team, then followed by, I guess you could say, the Washington Bullets. At the time, they were named the Bullets, or as Tony Kornheiser, who used to write for the Washington Post, would say, Les Boulets. The uh, Washington Capitals probably came in dead last. When I was growing up, we didn't have the, uh, we didn't have the baseball team. The baseball team didn't come here until 2005. And, you know, you have WNBA and you have soccer and all those type of things. They don't even, register on the radar during that time and you can even say possibly that the Baltimore Orioles as far as baseball was concerned was maybe more popular in the Washington DC area that team was more popular in the DC area than maybe the Washington Capitals and you could even make an argument that uh, during the lean years they were probably more popular than the Washington Bullets but for the most part we're not this crazy gung-ho oh my goodness Sports town. We're not New York City where you have 
people who are just diehard Knicks fans will ride and die generations upon generations. Same thing with the Mets. Same thing with the Yankees. Same thing with the Giants. Same thing with the Jets. We're not that. I mean, you know, we're not a team like the, we're not like a city like the Chicago Bears, like, you know, Chicago with the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Blackhawks and the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox and, and the Chicago Bulls. I mean, thanks to Jordan elevating that franchise to win six championships in eight years in the NBA and the 90s. We're, we're not that. We don't have a Michael Jordan to represent us. We don't have a, a, a hero or a transformative hero like a Joe Namath for what he did with a guarantee playing for the New York Jets. We don't have someone like a Jackie Robinson like the Los Angeles Dodgers do. We don't have someone like a Roger Stallback, Captain America for the Dallas Cowboys and what his impact and how great he was and the influence that he had. And he was the idol of millions of uh, people, of kids growing up in that area, me being one of them. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. I still have a picture of me in my, what, fourth or fifth grade picture? I think it was fifth grade, Miss Chubbuck's class. Uh, the, the picture, I was wearing the Roger Stallback number 12 jersey as a person living here in Washington, D.C. But I loved myself from Roger Stallback back in the day before I, you know, matured and got with the Washington football team. But that was back when I was, what, eight, nine years old? Give me a break, will you? But uh, so for the most part, you know, we don't have that guy. Our most, our greatest professional athlete, ever is a hockey player, if you think about it. That's Alex Ovechkin. That's our guy. You know, the Dodgers have Jackie Robinson. The Chicago Cubs have Ernie Banks. The New York Yankees have Babe Ruth and Lou Gehring. The New York Knicks have Patrick Ewing and Willis Reed. You're damn right I said Patrick Ewing with the New York Knicks. The Chicago Bears have Walter Payton. The Detroit Lions have Barry Sanders. The San Francisco 49ers have Joe Montana. The New England Patriots have Tom Brady. The Los Angeles Lakers have Magic Johnson. The Boston Celtics have Larry Bird. The Milwaukee Bucks have Giannis Adenokupo. The the, the, uh, Cleveland Cavaliers have LeBron and Austin Carr. The Houston Rockets have Moses Malone. And we have a fucking hockey player, a goddamn good one, one of the best ever. But hell, if Washington, D.C. was in Canada, yeah, I would be saying that with a lot more pride. Edmonton has Wayne Gretzky. Montreal has the Rocket Maurice Richard. (laughs) We have a fucking hockey player. God bless him. And Alex Ovechkin is the man. I love watching him skate. I love watching him play. But he's a hockey player. I mean, yeah, we've had Daryl Green and Walter Johnson and John Riggins and Wes Unsell and Art Monk and Sammy Ball and Elvin Hayes and Sonny Jerkinson. If you want to go to college, we had Len Bias and Patrick Ewing and going back to the pros, Joe Thiesman, Thiesman, the great Adrian Dantley played his high school ball in the Matha High School and grew up in the uh, D.C. area. Yeah, we've had those great players. Daryl Green, one of the greatest cornerbacks in the game, in the Hall of Fame. John Riggins coming over from the New York Jets and resurrecting his career. The reason why he's in the Hall of Fame for the most part is the work that he did with Joe Gibbs and leading the Washington football team to the championship in 1982. Wes Unsell, of course, a guy who is probably going to go down as the greatest player in the Washington Bullets Wizards franchise. Um, Elvin Hayes coming over from 
I believe it was, did he come over from Houston or San Diego? What the Rockets or something like that? Well, he came over and helped team with Unsell and Bobby Dandridge and Kevin Grevy and Mitch Kupchak, one of those guys. The fat lady never sings to give Washington their only NBA championship back in 1978. So he'll always be loved and uh, loved uh, uh, in, in these circles. Sonny Jurgensen coming over from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Eagles, and having uh, the over the hill gang, him and Billy Kilmer, uh, Joe Thiesman, Theismann. You know, not only winning a Super Bowl with the Washington football team, but unlike maybe someone like a Doug Williams or Mark Rippon, Joe Thiesman has stayed in the area. He had a really good restaurant down in uh, Northern Virginia, uh, Thiesman's Restaurant. But, uh, you know, he's been really a fabric of the Washingtonian area and has still been equated or still been having a relationship with the uh, football team. I still think he does the play-by-play during the preseason games for television out there in Washington. So he's still synonymous more than any other quarterback. If you think about it, if you think about great quarterbacks for the Washington football team, the professional football team, many people, especially around my age or a little bit younger or maybe a little bit older, will come up with the name Joe Theismann before anybody else. His real name is Joe Theismann, but they changed it to Theismann in college because Notre Dame, he was trying to win the Heisman Trophy, so he thought, as a, so Notre Dame thought as a better ploy to get him recognition for the Heisman that they would change his name from Thiesman, which was correct to Theisman. Theisman, Heisman. Hey, 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 hey! But that's the other deal. So, yeah, so when you're speaking about great athletes from this area, again, we're speaking about the greatest one being a hockey player. Now, there's other legends such as Joe Gibbs. I'm quite sure he is the, when you speak about sports royalty or the Mount Rushmore of sports figures in this town. Joe Gibbs is number one. I compare him to what Tom Landry is to the Dallas Cowboys. But you have Joe Gibbs. You have John Thompson Jr., the great John Thompson, Big John, Coach Georgetown Forever is in the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, Lefty Giselle, the great Hall of Fame coach for the University of Maryland. He's in the Hall of Fame. Morgan Wooten, Joe Gallagher, high school coaching legend for basketball. Morgan Wooten coaching DeMatha High School. Joe Gallagher coaching St. John's High School. Jack Kent Cook, the owner of the Washington football team when they were winning championships. Dick Mata, the head coach of the Washington Bullets when they won the 1978 NBA championship. The fat lady never sings. He coined that for, but for the most part, you know, this is, this is something where it's like Washington, D.C. is not overflowing with great historical franchises or great historical moments in sports. Or we're not that city. We're not that area that's synonymous with unbelievable sports fans or an unbelievable sports history. Again, we're not like those, um, even our counterparts, even someone like the Philadelphia, Philadelphia area that's had the Eagles and that's had the Flyers, that's had the 76ers. That we're... we're Philadelphia is a much more rabid, passionate fan base for their local teams more than the Washington, D.C. area. Same thing in Boston with the Celtics and the Red Sox and the Boston Bruins. I mean, those, those, um, the, the New England Patriots, those people up there in Boston are much more passionate, are much more into it as far as an entire sporting culture and community. We've got the Washington football team, and for the most part, again, that's it. The Washington Nationals, we won a, as I say we, you got that right. The Washington Nationals, we won a World Series, and that's great, and that's wonderful, but we're not a baseball town. Washington, D.C. ain't no damn baseball town. Hell, we had to go 
65 up the up 65 miles up the road north to cheer for a baseball team that wasn't ours because the uh, Washington Senators at the time took their talents to the Texas to Dallas Texas area. We had to steal a baseball team from Canada, the Montreal Expos. I wouldn't say steal them, but we had to take those uh, teams. We had to take that franchise and bring it down here. So we're not a baseball. We're not a baseball town. We're not a NBA basketball town. We're not that. I mean, for for the most part, when I was growing up, we were more of a high school basketball town than we were an NBA town. We were much more of a college basketball town when I was growing up back in the yes, 80s and 70s and 80s than they were a NBA town. I mean, that wasn't even close. Again, you had historical people like John Thompson and what he was doing with Georgetown. You had Lefty Drizel, what he was doing at uh, Maryland. You had guys like Mark Jarvis, what he was doing at GW. You had even, you know, schools like American. And you had schools, other schools, college basketball programs who were doing great. And while the Washington then bullets were bringing out, you know, teams like Tom Gugliotta and Rex Chapman and Ricky Sobers and Dan Roundfield and Manute Bowl and Tyrone Muggsy Bogues and Kenny Green and those clowns who couldn't do anything, who wouldn't do anything. I mean, apart from maybe Jeff Rulin and Rick Mahorn back in the early 80s, who had a mulchrum of success with the team, for the most part, Washington, D.C. ain't an NBA basketball town. It ain't like the New York Knicks. You know, it ain't like the Portland Trailblazers. It ain't like the Utah Jazz. It ain't like that. Which is not, it ain't like the Boston Celtics. It ain't like the Philadelphia 76ers. It ain't like the Indiana Pacers. It ain't like the, the, the San Antonio Spurs. It's just, it's just not. It's just not. When I was living in Phoenix, even though they stunk out loud for the most part, I shouldn't say stunk out loud, but they weren't going to win any championships at that time. But, you know, comparing the relationship and the fan base and the fandom of those of the, of the, um, Phoenix Suns compared to the Washington Bullets Wizards at the time, there was no comparison. Phoenix was a much better, much more passionate NBA city than the uh, Washington, D.C. area. So all of this is just to say, to get back to the point where it's like changing the nickname. I mean, we don't have anything else to go to. We don't have any other identity. I mean, the Knicks leave New York City. You guys still have the Brooklyn Nets, whatever. But you still have something professional football team or basketball team and even if the Knicks do leave you still got enough people in that city who are just die hard say it again New York Yankee fans live and die with the New York Nets who are strong New York Rangers fans I mean you have so many other sports that you can catapult to here in DC you don't we've got the Washington football team and that's it yeah we've got the we've got the basketball team who gives a fuck yeah we got the Baseball team is never going to be the same. So everything is so close. Everything was so protected. Everything is so valued concerning this franchise to do something as big and as huge and as memorable and historical as to change the name of our professional football team. And look, those who are listening to this in Perth, Australia, those who are listening to this in Bangladesh, those who are listening to this in Paris, those who are listening to this in Cape Town, South Africa, those who are listening to this in Salt Lake City, Utah, those who are listening to this in Tacoma, Washington, those who are listening to this in Boise, Idaho, I understand that you don't get it. I understand that you might be scratching your head saying, what's the big fucking deal? I get it. I understand it. But still, I mean, think about for those 
in Madrid, Spain. Think about those who are huge football fans, aka soccer. Think about, you know, something where your favorite, the most passionate fan base. Think about if, for instance, if Real Madrid decided to make a change in terms of something that's been so baked and woven into the fabric of your team and what you grew up on. Just think about that. And just think about someone in the Premier League, you know, one of the football teams in that league, they wanted to do something in terms of taking away something that has been so so synonymous, whether it be a nickname, whether it be anything associated with your favorite football team which you grew up in, how out of shape you would be, how bent out of shape that you would be, how surprised that you would be at something like that. Taking that nickname off of the Washington football team equates to the same thing. It does. It does. So it's it's just surprising, man. It is really surprising. Woo! Just saw Reggie hit a two-run home run watching this as I'm doing this podcast. This podcast is Wendell's World of Sports with your host, Wendell Wallace, K-Pasa, what is happening and what's going on. So we're speaking about the Washington NFL football team changing its name. And I'm just trying to give you some type of context. I'm just trying to give you some type of understanding of how big and how important this is. And how it's just basically, and I know folks are talking about, well, you know, D.C. was ready for it. The fans were ready for it, this, that, and the other. You know what? I don't know. I'm going to say, yeah, but if we decided to still keep that franchise name. Now, I know that in the end, money talks bullshit walks. And there was FedEx, and I'll get into this a little bit later on the podcast, but FedEx and others were sitting there talking about we're going to take away the money, we're going to take away the funds, and all those type of things. I'm still, I know that, I know that fan base. I know that area. I grew up there. I lived there. I still associate with folks there. Still huge fans there. Still in my blood. I'm telling you that if there was a situation, Snyder could have somehow, someway slow-plated this, slow-walked slow this, but once those folks came in and started talking about, we're going to start taking money out of your pocket, then they was kind of like, all right, no problem. And yet and still, it's just surprising to me. Here's what I would really like, though, man. From a fan that's been loving this team for over 40 years now, you know what I would really like to do? The only thing I want as far as, you know, what should we keep and what should go and the logo and the colors and the name and everything, here's what I want. I want a clean fucking slate, man. I want a clean break. You know, and I'm only talking about the last 20-something years of this franchise. I want a clean break. The only thing I want this team to keep is the name of the city where it, where it represents Washington, D.C., Washington. I want y'all to keep Dwayne Haskins, Chase Young, Terry McLaurin, Landon Collins, Brandon Sheriff, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Allen, and Ryan Kerrigan. Oh, yeah, and Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio. That's all, that's all I want. Everything else, go. Everybody else, go. The stadium, blow it down. Get lost. Scram. Everybody else, especially the owner, go. Get lost. They can be eradicated, erased. Get, go. They're at the door. See ya. I don't know where you're going, but you can't stay here. Get lost. I mean, I would like to see what happened with the Washington football team. I would like to see, as far as the city is concerned, I would like to see what happened in Baltimore with the NFL situation. 
I would like to see that happen in, in, in Washington. Now, I know we're doing apples to orange here, but hear me out. Remember where the Colts left? Jim Mercer took that franchise. John Elway, basically his refusal to play with the Baltimore Colts. He said, I would go ahead and play baseball for the New York Yankees if the Colts drafted me and instead they drafted Chris Hinton and that was enough for Jim Mercer and everybody to be like, you know what, we're fucking out of here. Indianapolis, here we come. But for the most part, man, that organization left. And then the city got the Baltimore, uh, got the uh, Cleveland Browns rebuilt. And now look at them right now. If you compare the franchises, the Washington football team and the Baltimore Ravens, it ain't even close in terms of success, in terms of the way that they're run, in terms of, uh, you know, the ineptitude factor, in terms of the dysfunctional factor. We have got, in terms of those two things, ineptitude and dysfunction, losing, being embarrassed, being a joke, uh, we've got the Ravens beat by a country mile in those departments if you're a Washington football fan. But in terms of winning, in terms of dignity, in terms of respect, in terms of fandom, in terms of pride, <laughs> the Ravens lap us. And it's embarrassing, especially when you're talking about people from Baltimore. Oh, jeez. So it's like, I would love to see, and again, I know it ain't going to happen, but I'm saying in Wendell's world, since this is Wendell's world in sports, hello, I would just love to see a situation where it's like, look, man, just take this whole fucking franchise. Daniel Snyder, take this fucking franchise. Leave us the coach. Leave us the uh, quarterback. Leave us the defensive end. Leave us the promising young wide receiver. Leave us the offensive tackle. Leave those guys. And you can just get the fuck out of here. And I don't know. Maybe we can take the Atlanta Falcons. Maybe we can take the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm up here already talking about what teams we can poach. But basically, we can go ahead. If there's any other team who wants to move here, we'll We'll gladly take them, and we can do for them what the Baltimore team did for the then franchise in Cleveland, the Cleveland Browns. We can just go ahead and just, you know, start from basic scratch, and we can go ahead and do this again. But, man, you, you take a look at what happened with the Colts leaving and then the Ravens getting the Cleveland Browns, and now look at them. Now look at that franchise. Better stadium, great owner, more Super Bowl wins, a new generation of fans that love the NFL, and a team that's, you know, what, 65 miles north of us? Some inferior ho-dunk town compared to the greatest city on the planet, Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area. We have to take a backseat to people in Baltimore. Oh, man! Jeez! <laughs> I, I know Kiai and, uh, and Meredith Nash are up there throwing tomatoes at me, but jeez! Come on! I lived in Baltimore for a couple of years. You're going to try to tell me? All right. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can listen to this podcast. podcast. So glad that you could be with us. So basically, man, let's just get to the facts, okay? Why make the decision so quickly to change the nickname? Very easy. Money and the possible negative distractions. Money, 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 money being the number one reason why. Number of sponsors like FedEx, which has their naming rights to the stadiums under a $205 million deal that runs until 2025. You had Nike, you had Pepsi-Cola. They all wanted the name changed. The retailers, including Target, Walmart, Amazon, stopped selling the team's merchandise. It was a letter signed by 87 investors and shareholders with a total worth of $620 million was sent to sponsors like FedEx and Pepsi-Cola and Nike, asking them to stop doing business with the team unless the name was changed. All of those things basically led to Daniel Snyder saying, okay, 
I've always said it, man. I've said this before in the podcast. If you want to hit rich folks, especially rich white folks, and you want to hit them where it hurts, if you want to really have change, protesting in terms of silent protest ain't going to do it. Nice protests ain't going to do it. Kneeling ain't going to do it. You know, Martin Luther Kinging the ways of trying to get things done here in the year 2020, that ain't going to happen. That is not going to be happening. Being nice and playing on their heartstrings and hoping that they see the logic and everything and peaceful, peaceful marching and everything for these rich Republican white folks and really any rich folks like that, as far as when you're speaking about billionaires, regardless of race, creed, color, or religion or anything like that, that shit ain't going to work. That shit ain't going to work. We're, we're the two things that are going to make people of that ilk stand up and take notice and possibly do something is if you fucking destroy what they have or you take money out of their pocket. And both of those things are synonymous. Because if you destroy what they have, that means you are taking money out of their pocket. So everything again revolves around taking money out of their pocket. That's the only way that you're going to get these owners to sit up and say, oh, okay, having folks from the reservation come and plead and beg Daniel Snyder to change the name wasn't going to get it done. Folks marching in front of the stadium before the games began and after asking them to change the name, it wasn't going to get it done. Going on the radio and saying Daniel Snyder's a bad guy and he's a horrible person and he's a racist and a bigot because he won't change the name of the uh, football team, the nickname of the football team, that wasn't going to get it done. None of that shit was going to get it done. Kneeling in protest of the name, that wasn't going to get it done. Marching, holding arms and asking and begging and pleading in a peaceful way to get it done, that wasn't going to get it done. The only way to get Daniel Snyder's attention, just like the only way you can get the attention of a Jerry Jones or a or a uh, Bob Kraft or any of these guys who own these football teams, it ain't kneeling, it ain't marching, it ain't going on social media and calling them bad names, it ain't going on the radio, it ain't going on ESPN, it ain't having a conversation with Max Kellerman and Stephen A, it ain't any of those things. It's all about saying, what can we do to have them lose money? And I'm not talking about a few bucks either. How can we do something to hurt their bottom line? And when it wasn't the Native Americans who got Daniel Snyder to change his mind about never changing the nickname of the football team, it wasn't the Native Americans, it wasn't the peaceful protesting, it wasn't the marches, it wasn't the signatures, the petition to have the football team change his name. It had nothing to do with any of that stuff. It all came down to, shit, how much is this going to cost me if I don't change the name? As I mentioned before. I thought the name would be changed, but under negotiations, with them, what's in it for me? Daniel Snyder is a businessman. Daniel Snyder ain't no dummy. Very rarely do you see people who are billionaires get there because they're dumb. They might inherit that money, but guess what? If you're inheriting a billion dollars, you better have some people who know what the fuck that they're doing around you if you're not equipped to handle that type of shit because you'll lose that money and you'll lose that money real quick. So these guys, Daniel Snyder didn't wasn't born. He he wasn't he didn't win the genetic jackpot to where he took over the fortune of some guy. No 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 no. Nah man, at the age of thirty something, when he was in the thirties, that man was if he wasn't a billionaire, he was damn near close to it. So Daniel Snyder ain't no idiot. Daniel Snyder ain't no dummy. He's a businessman. So with the football team looking to move, or at least the football team looking to get a better deal as far as the stadium is concerned. And we see the resistance from 
the area, the D.C. area and all those type of things with the, some important politicians, Eleanor Holmes Norton, dealing in that stuff in terms of, well, if you want to come back to D.C., then you want to reap the rewards of what bringing this football team back to D.C. can bring you, huh, then we better sit down, we better start negotiating. And we're going to first start negotiating with that name change, with that nickname, because that's got to go. And again, Target, Walmart, Amazon, ooh, when they stop saying, when all of a sudden they said, we're going to stop selling your merchandise, that's taking money out of their pockets. When FedEx was talking about, you know, you know, um, doing some shit with Nike and Pepsi-Cola, wanting that name change, all of a sudden now, that's potential dollars coming out of their pockets. So Snyder was like, all right, all right, all right. And I still think until that name is changed, I'm still not going to believe it, but we'll see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that we could be with you. I'm so glad that I could be with you also. So we have the reasons for the name change of the Washington football team First is dealing with the money. That's the main reason. That's numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then when you get to 25, after the first 24 reasons why that the name was changed, that nickname was changed because of money, after the first 24 reasons, number 25 is the negative distractions that it brings. Look, the Washington football team has been awful. They have sucked. They are a joke. They are a disgrace. They are inept. They are a clown show. They're an embarrassment for all of us who are stupid enough to still cheer and care about this football team. The last 11 years, when we're speaking about 2009 to 2019, you're speaking about the last 11 seasons. They've finished with a losing record eight of those seasons. They finished second, or they finished last or second to last nine times. Seven of those 10 seasons, they've had 10 losses or more. Something needs to change. The only halfway decent thing about the last 11 years was in the year 2012 with the RG3 era, where they won the NFC East with a 10-6 record. They beat the Dallas Cowboys on primetime television to eliminate the Cowboys from the playoffs. That's the that's the best thing that ever happened. And then they lost to the Seattle Seahawks. RG3 injured his knee, and we all know what happened from there. So you take away the 2012 season. You're looking at the Washington football team with a combined record of 56 in 103. So we're speaking now about a regime change. Jay Gruden out, Bruce Allen out. In comes Ron Rivera to oversee and run everything. We have ourselves a second-year quarterback, Dwayne Haskins, a Daniel Snyder preference pick with their first first-round pick that Ron Rivera has to work with. So there's a whole new regime. When we're speaking about change, it is a change. Not only with the nickname and the historical features of the Washington football team, but also in terms of trying to turn the corner. For the most part, this is the first time, I guess, since Mike Shanahan was the coach and he oversaw everything that Daniel Snyder has kind of acquiesced and given a lot of the autonomy on what to do with this franchise to Ron Rivera, to a, to a head coach. So we'll see what happens. Well, the Mike Shanahan era started off promising, I mentioned before, with RG3 2012, but it ended in embarrassment and dysfunction with this whole RG3, Daniel Snyder, Kurt Cousins, Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan deal. So we'll, we'll see what happens going forward. But one thing that the football team really doesn't need, especially with this pandemic going around, and we don't know exactly how this NFL season is going to look. We don't know 
Worst case scenario, if we're even going to have an NFL season, we don't know what it's going to be like in uh, when training camps start here in two weeks. We we don't know exactly. This is all going to be new. There's all there's going to be like adjusting going on that never took place before in any of these coaches and players' careers, especially at the professional level. So with everything that the Washington football team and the coaching staff and the players have to navigate through in terms of seeing what they could do without the guarantee that there's going to be a full season or a season at all. Another thing that the football team doesn't need to be worried about or be speaking about or being distracted by is when are they going to change the name? When are they going to change the nickname? When are they going to change the nickname? Why have they changed the nickname? What's your import in changing the nickname? What do you think about them not changing the nickname? So it's like, but for Vera, and any NFL coach who just despises any type of outside noise which affects their preparation, which affects their abilities to get the maximum amount of effort and concentration out of their players, out of their coaches, out of everything concerning that organization. Coaches are just maniacal about keeping the outside noise outside away from the team. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to talk about it. Nothing like that. No drama. No, we've got enough things to worry about. It's, it's hard enough to win a football game in the NFL, let alone enough to qualify for the playoffs, enough to become an elite franchise. And again, you throw what's happening in the world today with, with this pandemic, you throw this out there on top of everything else. We don't need this. Why are the Washington football team still named that racial slur? I don't need to be answering that question. I don't need our players to be answering that question. I don't need our players and our coaches to be dealing with that nonsense. So I think, again, getting that out of the way before training camp started in terms of we're going to change, we're going to get something else in here, I think that was also a smart move. And another reason why Snyder didn't continue to kind of kick this can down the road or try to you know, put his head in the sand. I think there was also pressure from the NFL, from the NFL owners to say, hey, man, just go ahead and get this shit done, will you? I mean, change the name. So, man, it's, it's, it's a, it's a day that I think, or when the time comes, I think it's a situation that needs to be done. I'm glad it's being done. It's a shock, but, uh, times are changing. The third reconstruction in this country is taking place. And while right now, currently, we are a joke of a country, we are a clown show of a country, we are an embarrassment of a country, I mean, hopefully in November, things can start to change and we can start getting our dignity back. So, you know, these type of things, what we're doing right now, again, as I, as I mentioned before, look, changing the name, the nickname of the Washington football team, again, I, I readily agree this ain't going to help the Native Americans who are living in our country right now, who are being ostracized right now, who are being ignored, who are being oppressed. Black folks and brown folks and poor folks are being oppressed. What the Native Americans are going through right now, that's almost even, as, if, if, it's not wor- if it's not as bad, it's worse than what they're going through. They get no help. This government does not help them at all. I mean, you're talking about being ignored. As I mentioned in my other podcast, right now in the Native American communities, their spousal abuse is high. Unemployment is high. Alcoholism is high. 
I, I've been through a couple of Native American communities. If you go up on my journeys from Vegas up to Mesquite, and even if you keep going through, you can go through a couple of Native American communities. When I was in living in Phoenix, there were some Native American communities that you could go through. And you took a look at what's going down in them places, man. And it ain't good. It ain't good at all. Despite having the reservation, having the gambling and all that kind of stuff, the casinos and all that kind of stuff to help a little bit, there's still some major problems that need to be addressed, which are not going to be addressed right now. Especially with the jackass racist piece of shit that we have in the office in the White House right now. But, uh, you know, I, I just hope that it's like, okay, we changed the name. Now, will you guys just shut up? I just hope that we don't have that attitude, not just from our leaders of this country, but also from the community. I just, I, I just hope that, you know, okay, we changed and you're no longer the Washington Redskins. Are you happy, Native Americans? Now, would you please go back to your reservations and leave us the fuck alone? I mean, I sure hope that we don't have that attitude. I sure hope that we don't, because they need our help. They need our help. Hopefully, this is just the beginning of maybe starting some type of relationship with those in the Native American communities and start addressing some of the needs that they need to have in their community to improve it. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Changes, begrudgingly, forcefully, however it gets done, it got done. So in the world and in professional sports, Monday with the announcement that Washington is going to be changing its nickname and its logo. Small, not really significant, but in a way, very significant. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So as I mentioned before, before I get back to the last thing I want to talk about concerning the Washington football team changing its name in 88 years of history being put, as far as I say, in history, in the history books, I have the, in the background here, I'm recording this in my living room, recording this podcast, so in the background to keep me going, I normally have sports on, you know, just to keep me in the mood. You know, sports podcasts, sports on television, you know, you know, making a connection. So I'm having on the 1977, 1978 World Series. I mean, I was only like six or seven years old when I was watching this, but I'm watching this now on YouTube. And it's like you watch the pace of play. And it's just so much better. The game right now is so, this is the best game I've seen. I know the outcome and everything like that. And today the players are bigger, they're stronger, they're more skilled and everything like that. I get it. But my goodness gracious, this is a much, much, much better game to watch. Why? Because the pace of play is so much quicker. These guys, when they pitch the, here we go. They're in there. You take the sign. Here's the pitch. The low, uh, low ball one, catcher picks it up, Munson gives it back to the guy, he takes a look, 
The batter steps in the batter's box. And how about that? And he pitches right away. You see that? You see how quick that was? You see how quick that was? You, you don't get that in today's game. You don't get that in today's baseball game. It's the guy throws the ball. It's the ball. The catcher picks it up. He throws it back to the pitcher. The pitcher walks around the mound. The pitcher takes a deep breath. The pitcher spits. The pitcher grabs his crotch. The pitcher adjusts his hat. The pitcher walks around the mound. The pitcher picks up the rising bag. The pitcher throws it down. The pitcher takes a deep breath. The pitcher walks back to the mound. The pitcher stares into the catcher. He stares. He stares. He stares. He stares. He takes a deep breath. And then he throws the ball again. And whether it's a ball or a strike, we repeat the same shit all over again. Throws it back to the pitcher. The pitcher takes off his glove. He rubs the ball. He walks around the mound. He adjusts his crotch. He spits. He tips his cap. Maybe there's some rosin in it. Maybe there's some some gel in it. We don't know. But he walks around. He takes a deep breath. He plays with the ball. He plays with his Johnson. He takes a deep breath. He walks around the mound. It's like, guys, come fucking on, man. And it's really bad when A, it's the postseason, and you get the reliever in, the uh, relievers in. And these motherfuckers take forever to throw the ball. And then, if that's not bad enough, then you get the batter in the batter's box. Whether he swings or misses a ball or a strike, he steps out the batter's box. He takes a look at the bat. He takes a deep breath. He adjusts his gloves. He takes a look at the third base coach. He spits. He adjusts his crotch. He takes another breath. He looks at the bat again. He He takes one step and puts it in the batter's box. Takes another deep breath. Put the other one back in the batter's box. He does his swinging motions, his routine. He takes a deep breath and then he waits for the pitcher. And we do that shit over and over and over again. And it's like, God damn, whatever happened to days like this? This is how I became a baseball fan. Because the game itself is fine. The playing of the game, the there's nothing wrong with the game in terms of, you know, batter, pitcher, first base, second base, ball strikes, outs. I mean, the, 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 the fundamentals and the foundation of the game is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a fantastic game, the fundamentals. It's just, can we please... Pick up the fucking pace of the game. And you can blame the microwave. You can blame instant that. You can blame drive throughs You can blame ADHD. You can blame all of these things now that infiltrate our society where we want everything and we want it now. We don't want to wait. Our attention spans are very, very short. We've got so many other distractions that, you know, we don't have time to be sitting there and watching three hours of a pitcher throwing a pitch, getting it back, walking around, taking off his glove, rubbing the baseball, taking a deep breath, spit, grabbing your crotch, playing with yourself, take a deep breath, all of this nonsense, walk around the mound, deep in thought. Our world is not built for that anymore. Throw it, get it back, deep breath. Get the sign, throw. Batters stay in the batter's box. Especially if you're a fool. If you're thinking fastball and you swing at the fastball and it's really a curve and it makes you look foolish and you might, my goodness, you gotta, you know, get yourself back together. So you have to walk around the batter's box and you have to, con- you have to control your emotions back again and you have to adjust, adjust your batting gloves and you have to, Take a look at your bat and you have to take a deep breath and you have to be deep in thought and you have to concentrate and you have to spit and you have to grab your Johnson and play yourself and get back in the batter's box. No, do what Chris Chambliss just did. Stay in the batter's box between pitches and do what Bert Hooten did. Get the pitch back, grab it, take a look at the catcher, 
Give the sign of what pitch you want to throw. <sighs> Take a deep breath and throw. All of that right there. And he just threw a pitch right there. There's no fucking way in today's baseball game that anything like that would happen. Okay, Jerome, that's my rant about why baseball today is losing interest among those with ADHD like myself. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Man. And can them, and someone in your sport please steal a base? Whatever happened to Ricky Henderson? Whatever happened to uh, a team like the 19... Oh my goodness, boy, am I dating myself on this shit. The 1980, what, Willie McGee and Ozzy Smith, Jack Clark at the cleanup guy, Ozzy Smith and Willie McGee and, oh my goodness, the 1985, 84 Cardinals? Our team was fucking fun to watch, man. Why? Because they actually played real baseball. And they weren't sitting around trying to hit home runs because those guys were all juiced up. <sighs> what happened to the suicide squeeze, the bunt? The hit and run. Those things never happen anymore. Pitchers. How about having a pitcher go at least seven innings? How about that? Now, I know today's baseball is going to be different because of 60 games. I don't know, man. You might see pitchers. You might be, see starting pitchers go like three innings, four innings. And then here comes a cadre of, a cadre of relievers, which means that these games are going to be like four hours of just slowness and just come on and throw the fucking ball. Great. Can't wait. And they real and they wonder why the black community has turned off to baseball. They wonder why, you know, baseball ain't like like it once was. Get some blacks playing in the game, speed up the game, get back to more of the traditional game which I grew up on. Look, man, I know the NBA is all a three point shooting contest and slam dunk, so you know, everything changes. Now now the Running back in the NFL, you won't see a, a a running back like Emmett Smith or a Jim Brown or an Earl Campbell or anything like that. Because now quarterbacks are trying to throw the ball 45, 50 times a game. And none of these quarterbacks are under center anymore. And the game has changed. It's wide open and four and five receivers. So I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Wendell. There's more sports than this baseball who are changing. I understand. I understand. I understand. But these things that I'm asking these guys to do should be fundamental. And believe me, there's still some teams in the NBA that play low post, that don't, 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 that don't shoot 45 three-pointers a game, see San Antonio, see the Philadelphia 76ers. Though so there's still teams out there, if you want to see old-school basketball, you can still watch them play. There's still teams in football that still run the football. The San Francisco 49ers made it to the Super Bowl, I guess, in what, in the NFC Championship game. Garoppolo threw what? Five passes or some nonsense like that. So there's still room for success in the NFL with a running game. So I'm quite sure that the, the running back is still a valuable player in the game. Maybe not as much as it was back in the day, but there's still room for a really great running back. So this thing to still change. Name me a team in baseball right now. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Boy, I'm off target with this. Uh, I'm off target with speaking about the uh, Washington football team. I'll get back to it in a second. This just came to me. I'm speaking to Jerome right now in Phoenix, Arizona, who's always coming at me with how wonderful baseball is. I call him Mr. MLB because, you know, Mr. Yankee fan over here from New York, you know, always talking about how great a sport is. Won't listen to the facts. Won't listen to the knowledge. Won't listen to the education. When I tell him that, A, Mike Trout is the greatest baseball player since Barry Bonds. B, that the... Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, one of these days, is actually going to turn the corner and do some things. So, you know, I'm trying to educate this man. It's, it's hard. It's hard. But being an educator that I am, you know, you, you don't give up. 
you, you don't give up no matter how hopeless the the venture, no matter how hard-headed the person is, you, you don't give up. Maybe that one day he'll see the light, you know, and my education toward his sport will come through. So I keep telling this guy, just just just, just give me a team. The Kansas City Royals won a, base, won a world championship not so long ago playing old-school baseball. Give me a team. There's got to be a team. There's got to be a team out there somewhere, maybe not this season, but maybe in 2022, 2023, that can get back to play some, 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 some relevance of old-school baseball. Bunning, hitting, running, you know, not relying on a three-run home run. I don't want to see the 1998 Baltimore Orioles again. I don't want to see that version of baseball again where Brady Anderson and Albert Bell and those guys were just sitting around trying to hit home runs. And if you needed a hit and run, those guys were lost because they didn't have anybody who could do that because they were all on PD, PEDs and they were all trying to hit home runs. Give me some old school baseball, please. Give me some Negro League baseball, please. Give me some St. Louis Cardinals in their prime baseball, please. Give me some 2005, 2000, and well, when did the, uh, not 2005, the Astros won in 2005. No, the, um, yeah. No, the White Sox won in 2005. I don't know. Give me some most recent Kansas City Royals tape baseball. I mean, they're out there. And for the youth, and for baseball in itself, try to get some more athletes at a younger age, mainly black kids, out there to play baseball again so they can bring that element into the game, Some bring, bring some speed into the game, bring some athleticism in the game. I mean, you know, the well is never going to run dry in the for finding talent, for mining for talent that can help the game grow here in the States, in the Dominican Republic, and in Latin America. Those countries will always provide fantastic baseball players for for the game. But man, you guys are missing out on an on an opportunity to elevate the game even more and change its playing styles when you don't do enough. Again, I know RBI and I know there's been some things going on in baseball to try to get the inner city youth, the black youth, to be more in tune and more interested in playing baseball, but you guys need to just pick up your game. You guys need to do much better. Come on, Tony Clark. Let's get it done with that nonsense. Come on. Come on. And for Jerome, listen, learn, learn, listen, listen, learn, learn, listen, learn, educate, learn, listen, while I'm speaking to you about your sport, which I'm educating you on daily. But you're, you know, you're resistant to change. My goodness gracious. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that, uh, <laughs> so glad that you could be with us. Mike Trout is never going to become a New York Yankee. Sorry, he ain't going to be wearing the pinstripes. Neither was Bryce Harper. Neither is Chris Bryant. I keep trying to tell him this. He just thinks that every baseball player who's worth their salt is going to be joining the New York Yankees. This ain't the NBA and with the Los Angeles Lakers, all right? You don't get the privilege. The Yankees, I don't care how much money you spend. You don't get the privilege. You didn't get Mookie Betts. You didn't get uh, you didn't get Bryce Harper. You didn't get Mike Trout. You didn't get Manny Machado. And don't give me some bullshit about well, we didn't want him anyway. Yeah, you fucking did. Yeah, you fucking did because you were jabbing about that for years with Bryce Harper, trying to trying to annoy me about that he was going to be leaving the Washington Nationals for the New York Yankees just to get under my skin. But you swore that he was going to be going to the New York Yankees. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Get off my job. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let's get back to some NFL football. Let's do this. Let's do this. Preparation for the name change. The Washington professional football team changing its nickname. The historical change. Franchise been identified with 
as the old nickname for 88 years, man. Just think about that. Five league championships, three Super Bowl wins. The last one was in 1991. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 1991? I was young. I was young and skinny and had hair in a hairline back then. Man. And good looking, too. 1991, they beat Buffalo 37-24. That was 29 years ago. There are only five teams in NFL history that has appeared in more Super Bowls than Washington and New England Patriots, of course, with Tom Brady. I mean, shit. The Dallas Cowboys have eight. The Pittsburgh Steelers have eight. The Denver Broncos, the Denver Broncos, really, that's interesting, have eight. And the San Francisco, the San Francisco 49ers only have six. For a team that could be regarded as a team of the 80s, I could have sworn, you know, you went, you make that transition from Joe Montana to Steve Young, Bill Walsh to George Seifert. I thought that uh, the Bartlow had more Super Bowls than that. Or yeah, so that was that was interesting. And with the Washington football team appearing in five championship games, when you include the league championship before it became the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl included, Washington is tied with the Oakland Raiders, Miami Dolphins, New York Giants, and Green Bay Packers with five championship appearances so when you take a look at their accomplishments five conference championships 14 division championships 24 playoff appearances as i mentioned before in 80 something years not bad not bad so this is almost like a cleansing you should say in terms of what's happening with the renaming it, it should be that really if you think about that it should be something to where it's like look man we are this is like a whole this whole new change now is like starting a whole new chapter now we're speaking about what influence can we have, can this football team have for the new generations of Washingtonians who are going to be growing up? Because we want that generation and the generation after that and the generation after that that have the same passion and relationship and fervor and love for whatever the new nickname of nickname is of this team than we had with our team, with the, with the old nickname. You know, we want to have that moving on. We don't want this to dissipate in terms of, you know, what's going to be happening with the name change and the way that the franchise is now. I mean, the the old nickname, it had its good days, it had its bad days, it had its memories, but now as it's dying or now it has expired in terms of us changing that nickname, it was DOA. And the apathy and the anger and the lack of just who gives a fuck because this team sucks anyway was running rampant with football team, with football uh, fans of this team. Now we're just starting from brand new. That's the way the owners should look at it. That's the way the coaches should look at it. That's the way the players should look at it. You are no longer associated with that old nickname. You are no longer associated with that history. Now. You could even start your own history, even though it's going to be baked in, just like the Wizards and the, and the Bullets with the basketball team here. It's not like we have separate record books for the Bullets and the Wizards, of course. But if I'm Rivera, it's like, for me, that's what I'm selling to our players here. That old nickname is out. And we kind of knew what that nickname was synonymous with for the last 11 years. I just told you, losing, 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 losing. Let's start our own legacy. Let's start our own chapter. Let's bring in our, our own fan base. Let's right now start winning football games. So that five-year-old, that eight-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 12-year-old, 30 years from now, when they have their sons and their daughters and they're married and they're still living in the D.C. area, they can teach their children 
the love of the Washington Red Tails or the Washington Monuments or the whatever they're going to be named now. They're going to have the same passion. They're going to have the same feel of wonderfulness to pass on to their children with the Washington Red Tails as we had when we passed on our love to our children when being fans of the Washington Snyder Skins or Redskins, whatever you want to say that. So let's start that right now. The memorable moments of that old franchise nickname has been great. There have been many memorable moments. Moving from Boston to D.C. in 1937, beating the New York Giants 13-3 in their first game in their new city, beating the Chicago Bears 28-21 in the 1937 NFL Championship game, 1972, the NFC Championship game over Dallas and Roger Stallback 26-13. That was the over-the-hill game that went to the Super Bowl and lost 14-7 to the undefeated Miami Dolphins. I remember 1982, defensive back, defensive tackle Daryl Grant's interception, Return for a 10-yard touchdown off of um, Cowboys quarterback. How about this? Gary Hogaboom, because we knocked out um, Danny White. Dexter Manley, I think, knocked out Danny White. Hogaboom came in through that interception off a tip from Dexter Manley. Intercepted by Grant, ran in for a touchdown, clinching the 31-17 victory, which had the uh, RFK Stadium rocking. If you ever go back and this, that, and the other, remember those highlights that you had where they showed RFK and the fans were jumping and the seats were moving. It was almost like, it was like an earthquake. They were, you know, they were so loud and it was so rambunctious that the stadium was almost basically moving and they showed the, the stands or the moving. That was from that game. That was from the 1982 game and beating our hated rivals, the Dallas Cowboys. 70 chip. In Super Bowl 70, 17, people in the D.C. area of a certain age, they know that call. They know that that phrase. They know that fourth and inches. Washington was down 17 to 13 in the fourth to the Miami Dolphins in the Super Bowl. That Dolphins team, I think of the last, um, no, 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 no. That was the second to last uh, Super Bowl that Don Shula ever went to. He went to uh, one more with Dan Marino where they lost to the uh, San Francisco 49ers. But, yeah, that was um, the game against Washington. They were... Washington was down 17 to 13 in the fourth. The coaches called 70 chip, a play that was designed for short yardage, but Riggins instead ran through Don McNeil, ran over him, got the go ahead touchdown. It was hail to the Washington football team. Hail victory. Brave on the warpath. Fight for all DC. Damn right. So yeah, that was, if you take a look at NFL films and they show the close ups of these guys running for touchdowns, they showed Willie Brown. And his interception of Fran Tarkington and the close-up of him running down the uh, sideline for a touchdown to clinch a 32-14 victory in the Oakland Raiders Super Bowl victory over Minnesota in 1976. And that was the same shot they gave John Riggins, that close-up of him running down the left sideline after he ran over Don McNeil for the touchdown. I mean, that's one of the great plays in NFL annals, annals history, so to speak. So, yeah, that's a wonderful moment in Washington football history. Always there, man. Always there. Fantastic. But the best moment in the Washington professional football franchise, and basically I would say this, one of the best moments in NFL history was in 1988, January 31st, San Diego, Super Bowl 22. You betcha. You gotcha. You better believe it. One of the greatest, goddamn right, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, 
quarter and performance in NFL history. Don't give me some bullshit about back in the day, Ernie Nevers scoring 40 straight points for the Chicago Chicago Cardinals. Don't give me some bullshit back in the day about Steve Van Buren running for 136 yards, 196 yards in the snowstorm to get Philadelphia's first NFL championship. Don't give me any of that nonsense. When you speak about the specter of the game, when you speak about the stage, when you speak about the spotlight, when you speak about the meeting, when you speak about the importance of what that game represented, that was, without question, I never say this was the greatest, What, but I will say one thing. It belongs at the table, very high up there, VIP, head of the table in terms of the greatest performance in NFL history. Play it, baby! Washington Redskins offense is back on the football field, and so is number 17, Doug Williams. Fake. Williams going up top. Got Sanders on the fly. Midfield. He's gone. Unless they can catch him. The 30, the 20, the 15, the 10. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. Just like that. Well, Doug Williams and company. Light it up, and they're back in this game. Yes, sir. We coming back. We gonna do it. Obviously, they're gonna pass. Williams to pass. Lobs it up. He's got Clark at the goal line. He's got it. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. The Redskins have arrived. They woke up. He'll hand off to Smith. The deep back. Good hole. Midfield. Horse race to the 40. Far side 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. Timmy Smith from 58 yards. seen a virtuoso performance. Oh. Action fake this time. Fake out everybody. He's got Sanders in the clear at the 10. Touchdown Washington Redskins. It's a new Super Bowl record. Four touchdowns in one quarter. And another one right here. Let's see. Do they go up top? Locks it into the end zone. He's got Didier. Touchdown Washington Redskins. <laughs> Holy the Redskins scored 35 points on five straight possessions, and by the end of this unbelievable second quarter, everyone in the stadium had memorized the words to hail to the Redskins. Fight for all DC! God damn right on that one, boy. Man, when I was putting that shit together, mm, man, you talking about goosebumps. I watched that game in the dorm room in, at TMI, Tennessee Military Institute. No, not the Navy. It was a prep school for basketball. But uh, that was in Sweetwater, Tennessee. And I was watching that game with my man uh, Elgin. No, what was his name? Uh, oh, Dylan, Dylan Blaylard? Dylan? My man, I don't even remember what his name is. I know he was from Elgin, Illinois. Well, well, it's long ago, but I was watching that game, and boy, you talking about some pride, man. You talking about seeing my man Doug Williams get it done. He was shaky in the games, in the playoff games against Chicago and against Minnesota. I mean, Daryl Green's punt return was the um, key of the game in that victory over Chicago in their playoff game. And then in the NFC Championship game, Darren Nelson missing that pass from Wade Williams at the goal line on fourth down in the end of the game. That was a turning point of the game in terms of the football team from Washington getting into the Super Bowl. So I was like, phew. But boy, the way that man put it on the Denver Broncos in the second quarter, five touchdowns on 19 plays in the quarter. Again, Williams becoming the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Goddamn, yes, her, yes. 
That was some that was some historical shit right there, man. So that for me, and for it should be for a lot of people, is one of the greatest, if not very arguably, the greatest quarter, the greatest performance, the greatest uh yeah, the greatest performance in NFL history. And it was done by my team in my city with a black quarterback. That's goddamn right. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So Man, I'm just thinking, what are some of the, what's some of the, I don't even know what the new name should be. Now, someone said, I was reading that the, uh, that someone owns the trademark to the Washington Red Tails, the Washington Senators, the Washington Monuments, the Washington Warriors, and the Washington Generals. I would love the Red Tails. It was a, um, man, I was wanting to go ahead and, um, Looked it up so I can give you more information so I can become more educated on it. Because right now, when it comes to the Red Tails, I'm very ignorant and uneducated about talking about the importance of the Red Tails. I know there were Tuskegee Airmen uh, in the war who did some stuff. So the Red Tails, I think, for Chocolate City. How about this? The Washington Chocolate City. Now Chocolate okay. But for the most part, in fact, now Chocolate City. It used to be, when I was growing up, D.C. was definitely Chocolate City. All the brothers and sisters lived in Washington, D.C. It was either D.C. or P.G. County. But, uh, you know, now it's, now it's kind of like, what's, what's a lot more vanilla than there is chocolate? Man, I remember, I'll get back on track. Hold on for, hold on for a second. I just gotta say this. For those who might not have been down to D.C., I, I just, I'll, I'll get back on track. I just want to say this. That when I went back home, it was like some weird ass shit because, you know, I remember, you know, driving through D.C. five, four, three, two years ago. And it's like, I'm driving in places to where when I was growing up, ain't nothing but black folks down there. Nothing but black folks. When you're talking about going down Georgia Avenue on um, on the Northwest, you know, you take Georgia Avenue, you go all the way down past Howard, all the way down to the Capitol. Um, you know, you go down, when you first get into D.C., about five minutes into that, it was, you know, it was, it was black folks, black folks, black folks, black folks. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but that's the way it was. It was just black folks. Two years ago, one year ago, man, I drove down there and my eyes just bugged out like a stomped on toad frog. White folks, white folks. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. White folks out there walking along the streets. White folks with their kids and their, and their, and their toddlers and their baby cribs walking around the streets. 30, 35 years ago, you would have drove and rained, roll, rolled down your window and said, hey, what the hell are y'all doing? Y'all better get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Do y'all know where you're at? You're in Northwest, you're in Northwest Washington, D.C., Georgia Avenue. Y'all better get the hell out of here before y'all get shot, robbed, something. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> you go back in the crevice where it was like nothing but black folks. You see nothing but white folks. And it was like, damn, what? Chocolate City definitely has changed. Then you go to Georgetown. You know, me and my boy, Mikel Davis, closer to the brother, Mikel Davis, we'll go up and, up and around Georgetown, um, M Street, you know, the, 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 and it was nothing but white folks when we would go up there when we were, you know, 18, 19 years old, you know. Now it's like a whole mix of people. It's like, so wait a minute, so the, the black folks from Northwest D.C. and all of that kind of stuff, Georgia Avenue and all around there, now they're the ones up there over on M Street and Wisconsin Avenue and Massachusetts Avenue? Because, man, I was like, when the hell did Georgetown all of a sudden get integrated? Because back in the day, it definitely was not. <laughs> it definitely was not. And the only black folks that went there were Rayful Edmonds. 
and his crew. <laughs> you know, so it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Okay, back to that. I just wanted to get that out there. So back to um, back to the name change. You know, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you. I don't know. What, I don't know what you. I mean, I'm quite sure. I would love the Red Tails, but as I mentioned before, someone owns the trademark. How much money are we going to have to come up with? How much money is the owner, somebody, going to have to come up with to kind of say, you know, can we use that name? Can we borrow that name? And with the understanding that it will not be disrespected, that it will not be, you know, that, that type of thing. I wonder, I wonder what's going to be happening with that. Red Tails, Senators, the Washington Senators, that was the baseball team. I wouldn't want that. The Washington Monuments, the Washington Warriors. Eh, don't you think Warriors is still a little bit too Native American-ish until you got the Chiefs, you got this, that, I don't know. Warriors seem to be... You can still sort of kind of, if you stretch, if you stretch a little bit, you can still make that connection to something Native Americans. If I was going to name the war, if I was going to name the football team the Warriors, I would definitely check with the uh, Native Americans to see if that's cool or not. See if, because, you know, first thing I think about is Native Americans when it comes to that. I don't know why. I don't think about, when I think Warriors, I don't think Golden State. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. So, Washington Generals. Hmm. You know, over the past 20 years, Washington has played the role of the generals in the NFL who are cast as the Harlem Globetrotters to those NFL teams. So, you know, the Washington generals, that's what I think about. When I think about Washington generals, I think about those guys getting getting clowned by the Harlem Globetrotters. So you can kind of make that connection because, really, the Washington football team for the past 20, 25 years have been clowned by the other teams in the NFL. So they have played the role of of the Harlem Globetrotters clowning the Washington football team played by the Washington Generals. So I don't know. I don't know about that. It would be whatever it is. I'm just glad that they're moving forward. I'm just glad that uh, there's a name change. I'm just glad all of this stuff is taking place. As I mentioned before, man, it's about damn time it's happened. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Oh, before I go on to UFC 251, the recap, I just want to say that the highlights of the Washington football team and their destruction of the Denver Broncos, I forgot to mention this, that sound was courtesy of Frank Herzog, the play-by-play guy, who should have some type of consideration to be in the NFL Hall of Fame as far as broadcasters are concerned, Sonny Jerkinson and Sam Huff, those were the guy, long-time radio play-by-play and color guys for the Washington football team. So I grew up with those guys. I grew up with Frank Herzog saying, touchdown, Washington Redskins. Now it's going to be something entirely different. Now they got, what, Larry Michael as doing the play-by-play now. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting 
to see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Just wanted to throw that out there. Give credit where credit was due. All right, UFC 251 to recap. Oh, good card. Good card. I know people are going to sit there and be like, ah, this, that, and the other. It wasn't great. It wasn't Gacy Ferguson great, but I found it entertaining. I paid 65 bucks for it, so I found it was well worth the money. Kamara Usman defeats Jorge Masvidal via unanimous decision, retaining the welterweight title. The judges scored the fight 50-45, 50-45, 49-46 for Usman. I thought it was 49-46. I gave Jorge the first round, but you know, he defends his title. Usman defends his title for the second time. Very professional performance by the champion. I was texting my man Armando Vasquez and throughout the fight. You know, he's another guy I'm trying to educate on, you know, as far as uh, the sport is concerned. Trying to educate Jerome on baseball. Trying to educate Armando on fights, you know, because when you're a real fight fan who takes it to the next level like myself, you like I said, you don't want to just keep all, all of this knowledge. You know, you don't want to be selfish and keep all the knowledge. You try to move it on and give to other folks. So Armando, now I'm, I'm, I'm educating on the uh, ways of the UFC and boxing and such. Throwing things, all right, Jesus. So it was a very professional performance by the uh, champion under the circumstances that were presented to him. I mean, basically, he did what he had to do to keep the title. That's exactly what you do. People are going to sit there and moan and complain about, oh, he should have done this. Look, man, not everybody can be Forrest Griffin and Stephen Bonner. All right, that doesn't happen. And again, when you're uh, when you're getting ready to fight one type of fighter, and then within six days you have to flip the script. And, you know, get yourself ready for somebody completely different. You do what you have to do. And you play to your strengths. So, Usman had the most to lose if he didn't beat Masvidal. Masvidal could come in and, after the fight, Dana White was like, nah, it ain't gonna happen. But Masvidal, if he lost the fight, he could make the excuse if he lost it in a really close decision. Let's just say that this was a classic, this was unbelievable, this was... You know, the fight from Dustin Poirier's fight a couple of weeks ago, that type of slug it out, really split decision, unbelievable. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this type of deal. Masvidal could have easily said, I had, a, I, I deserve a rematch. And he would have been correct to say that he needs an immediate rematch once those guys, you know, healed up because of the performance that he gave on six months notice, or excuse me, on six days notice. He could have easily done that. And if he would have beaten Usman, Usman, that would have been it. There is no immediate rematch for him. I mean, basically, he would have been cast aside like Tyron Woodley in terms of any type of chance of getting back quickly into the picture to fight for a championship. That means he would have to gone back, not basically to the bottom, but, you know, you see the fights that would have been awaiting him if he would have lost that fight just to get back into the contention of fighting for a welterweight championship, especially, you know, considering that he lost the fight. If he got knocked down in round one or Masvidal caught him, I mean, my goodness, Usman's shine is really off in terms of what the UFC can do. They're going to completely, for the most part, forget about him. So he had a lot to lose. Different fighting style, different mentality, different attitude when you're facing Jorge Masvidal compared to Gilbert Burns. Those guys, speaking of Masvidal and Usman, had some beef. They got into it a little bit, verbal altercation, at the Super Bowl, Gilbert Burns and Usman are friends, same training partners. I mean, they, you know, they, they're, they're at the same uh, training facility. They train together, the same managers. So it was an entirely different situation. So in a deal like that, 
Usman's strengths coming into the fight were his size, his strength, his conditioning, and his wrestling abilities. So why in the hell are you going to stand there to appease the fans, zero people in the audience, why are you going to sit there and try to appease the fans by standing in front of a guy whose only chance to win is to knock you out standing up? Of course you're going to lean on him. Of course you're going to fight him in the full booth. And you're going to go home with the win. Fuck you. Take my title. If Michael Bisbin say it, you know what? You know, the fans might not like it, but who gives a fuck? You need, you're the champion. You do what you need to do to win. You worry about the, you worry about the fans and all that nonsense later. The fans ain't going to be there if you lose. So, you know, hey, Abasmadal came out aggressive in the first round, came out looking at, basically, I guess he said, look, because of, and while I was trading, I was trading to fight Usman, and there was just a little bit of a delay where that wasn't going to happen, and I knew that he was in negotiations in terms of a contract with the UFC, so there was even some speculation, there was even some talk, when exactly is Abasmadal going to get back in the octagon, even if he's going to get back? in the octagon with the UFC. So all of this stuff was swirling around. And then on a short notice, he went out to Abu Dhabi, quarantined himself, took his Corona test, came out uh, negative, and then he was up there fighting. So the, the gas tank that he had, it was basically, look, if I'm going to win this fight, I'm going to do it in the first, I would say, eight to ten minutes. So let me go out and see what I can do. And he came out aggressive in the first round. He was looking to end the fight in the first round. He was the guy that when the bell rang for the first round, he took center and the octagon started throwing kicks until he was taken down by Usman about 30 seconds into the fight. But guess what? Just when we thought that, oh, okay, just like Masvidal said, Usman just going to stand there and sniff it or you know, lay on him and sniff his jock. And he was going to do that for the entirety of the fight. No, Masvidal um, showed some real surprising wrestling takedown defense and others and got right back up. And at one point in the first round, Jorge outstruck Kamara 27-8. But I'm quite sure it's just a long game, you know? Let's play that long game. He knew he didn't have the stamina to, to, to stand with Usman for five rounds. And he was doing well until near the end of the first. And you started to see that Jorge was starting to slow down. Usman was starting to take control of the pace, the flow, the rhythm of the fight, where it was going. And it was it was basically a wrap after, especially midway through the second. And you saw that, for the most part, you saw that once Usman would have him against the cage and do some work stomping on his feet like 15,000 times and when he, the shoulder strikes and everything like that. And when he stepped back, Jorge had a chance to maybe do something, but Jorge never really came off the cage, he just stood there. Or he just kind of was like, not motioning, but he was just giving the body language as such that, now I'm not going to meet you. I'm not coming your way. You're going to have to come my way. And Kamara was like, okay, let me kind of regain myself. Let me kind of see what I can do. And let me get back to Randy Couturing you with the uh, dirty bossing and such on the uh, up against the cage. So right there, you kind of figure that, oh, okay, well, you know, this is a situation where unless unless a miracle happens, this is the way it's going to go. This is the way it's going to be happening. So, you know, from that point on, again, Usman just started, basically, started taking control. And Nathadol stopped seven of the first eight takedown attempts. He was defending, but again, he wasn't being offensive. So, from the second round on, Usman, and, and again, this is where people are whining and complaining about, oh, you know, this is boring, this is horrible, this is terrible. He had them against the fence, stomping on his feet, shoulder shrugs, body shots, Wearing them down when they would disengage, especially after the second round, Masvidal wouldn't come off the cage. 
So it was the same story in rounds three, four, and five. Usman imposing his will, bullying Masvidal against the cage, dictating the pace and the punishment of the fight. Jorge smiling and saying it didn't hurt. And for the most part, neither fighter was in trouble or seriously hurt during the fight. It was just a professional MMA performance by a great fighter at this time and a great champion in Kamara Usman. That's it. And I'm, I'm sorry that not every fight can be a slugfest. I'm sorry that not every fight can be one of these, like, you know, Alexander Gustafson versus John Jones part one type of fights. But you got to do what you have to do when uh, when you have the circumstances that uh, were facing Kamara Usman at the time. And I can understand, you know, many people in the UFC and MMA fans were watching the fight, calling it boring. boring. Look, look, based on their last three fights, that they've seen Jorge Masvidal fight, the last fight that Kamara Usman fight, excuse me, fought, I can understand where people might have thought that this is going to be something where we had an opportunity to have to have a classic. Jorge Masvidal is the most popular, if not the second most popular fighter in the organization behind Conor McGregor. He is a pay-per-view generator. He is quickly elevating himself up to that status to where I guess only people like Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey were in terms of people buying the pay-per-view. Maybe he might be in the same level as someone like a Chuck Liddell or Tito Ortiz, someone at that time, in terms of the importance of what the UFC has going for them right now due to the fact that this coronavirus, John Jones is still in a contract dispute. Henry Cejudo has now retired. Conor McGregor, for the time being, is not fighting. Um, Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier are going to be getting it on in August, but for the most part right now, when you think about really true superstars that the public gravitates to, that the public right likes, and that the UFC can market and market well because he has a great personality, he has a great style, he has a great fighting style, he has charisma, he has all of those things. Jorge Matavidal, as we stand right now, is that guy, is that face, is that definition for the UFC. And based on his last three fights, a KO of Darren Till, five-second KO of Ben Askren and then the junk talk and the trash talk afterwards and the performance against Nate Diaz for him winning the baddest motherfucker belt and all that kind of stuff. And now he's going to be on the Dan Lebertard show and now he's going to be doing some things for ESPN in terms of, you know, talking and speaking. And he's been doing uh, some, I guess, what, some artwork or he he's now on the cover of the UFC uh, uh, video game, him and Israel Adesanya and, and all of those things. So the shine... The spotlight on Masvidal was strong, stronger than anybody else. And most people who didn't know Jorge Masvidal, never heard of more Jorge Masvidal, knew very little of Jorge Masvidal before Darren Till, before Ben Askren, before Nate Diaz. Now all of a sudden, that's their guy, that's their man. And that's what they know of when we speak of Jorge Masvidal. And in respect to that, they don't know Kamara Usman. They don't really know who he is. Kamara Usman has a chance, get this Armando, Kamara Usman has a chance to be someone like a Marvin Hagler in terms of being a great, great champion until he fought someone who could give him some shine, a.k.a. Sugar Ray Leonard or a.k.a. Roberto Duran. He could be a guy who could just be dominating division and no one really knows about because he doesn't have that style to where he's going to sit and bang with you. Just like Hagler. Hagler wasn't going to sit there and bang with you for the most part during the prime of his career where he was fighting Vito Antifermo and those guys. He was going to be a guy that was going to win boxing matches, become the best welt of middleweight who's ever who's ever fought next to Sugar Ray Robinson and go out like that. But because of that, his fighting style 
wasn't something that attracted a lot of fans, which is one of the reasons why Marvin Hagler had to change his name to Marvelous Marvin Hagler to get people to recognize who he was because beating the likes of John Mugabe and everybody else wasn't giving him the acclamation, wasn't giving him the attention, wasn't giving him the spotlight, wasn't giving him the ability to make the money that those like Tommy Hearns, Roberto Duran, and Sugar Ray Leonard were doing. It wasn't until he fought those guys that people started saying, oh, wow, you know what? Marvin Hagler is really a really, really great fighter. It's the same thing with Kamara Usman. Kamara Usman has a chance to go down as a really, really, really Marvin Hagler, marvelous Marvin Hagler type great fighter. A guy who's going to defend his title, a guy who's going to beat up people, a guy who's going to win fights convincingly, but he's not going to have that ooh, he's not going to have that ah, he's not going to have that wow factor to him. He's not. He's not. And because Mavidal came in without a true training camp came in shape, but he didn't come into the form and the shape that could have lent to a better fight. Usman missed his opportunity that Roberto Duran, that really Thomas, uh, Thomas Hearns gave to Marvin Hagler. When Hagler fought Roberto Duran at the time, Roberto Duran was damaged goods after the Nomas situation. And it was a, it was a unanimous decision. Big fucking deal. When Marvin fought Tommy Hearns and that eight minutes of war had to go down round one as one of the greatest fights, greatest rounds in heavyweight uh, uh, boxing history, that's where people started to then notice Marvin Hagler. You think Sugar Ray Leonard would have came out of retirement to fight Marvin Hagler if Marvin Hagler still had the same level of notoriety that he had before he fought Tommy Hearns? I doubt it. So that's the same thing getting all the way back now to Kamara Usman. Kamar Usman had that opportunity, like, say, say, for instance, Amanda Nunez had to elevate her profile by beating the shit out of that overrated clown, um, um, Amanda, um, Ronda Rousey. And she did. And that elevated her. And she did it in spectacular fashion. She didn't do it by holding on to her and, and shoulder shrugging her and feet stomping her for five rounds. She did it by knocking her the fuck out in 40 something seconds. Kamara Usman is not that type of fighter who's going to do that. That's not Kamara Usman's style of fighting, especially given the circumstances that he had coming into this fight to fight Masvidal. He did what he had to do at the expense of possibly becoming a huge star because for those, again, who are in love with Jorge Masvidal and know nothing about Jorge Masvidal except for the last three fights, you know, he's the, he's the guy. He's the, that and the other. He, they don't know Masvidal's story. They don't know that he's lost 13 times. They don't know about uh, those types of losses. All they know is about the guy who knocked out Ben Askren with a spectacular running knee and then talked shit afterwards. That's what they know. That's what they love. They just know him as the guy who held, who holds the baddest motherfucker belt because he uh, beat, beat Nate Diaz and uh, shut up D, uh, Diaz's army. So, again, people take a look at that and like, oh, it was boring. The... Colby Covington fight that Usman had, which was basically a slugfest, and it had to be a slugfest. It had to be one of those type of fights because Colby Covington needed to have his mouth fucking shut and broke. Thank you very much, Kamara Usman. If Kamara Usman would have had that type of strategy and would have had that type of result against Jorge Masvidal, then we're talking about all of a sudden now that shine, that spotlight for Kamara Usman glowing Glowing, glowing, glowing. If he fought Jorge Masvidal like he did Colby Covington. But why do that when 
you can go ahead and retain your welterweight belt doing it the way that he did it. And I, I found it, I found it entertaining. Did I find it more entertaining than the fight that he had against Colby Covington as far as style is concerned? No. But I didn't find it boring. I wasn't sitting there saying, oh, come on. And it wasn't like Houston Alexander, it wasn't like uh, Houston Alexander versus, um, Kimbo Slice. That was the worst fight I ever saw. This wasn't something like where it was Frank Mir versus uh, Mirko Krokop. That was one of the f- worst fights I've ever seen. It wasn't one of those deals. I mean, very rarely did Kamara have Jorge on the ground. He wasn't George St. pierre him in terms of just holding him on the ground and trying to work. He wasn't Damian Mayan, the guy, as far as trying to take him down. He wasn't doing any of that. Again, it takes two to fight. You know, he let off the cage plenty of time for Jorge to do something, but Masvidal didn't. So you can't blame Kamar Usman for continuing to do what he was doing. So again, he didn't lay on him and sniff his jock for 25 minutes, stayed in his face. He moved forward the entire fight. So I don't, I mean, I don't know what people want to see in terms of MMA fans. I mean, MMA love, I heard a lot of uh, talk about people saying, well, Kamar Usman is a great fighter, but he's boring. I don't see it that way. I really don't. In fact, Kamara talked about his critics complaining he's not getting into bar fights against his opponents. This is what he said. There was a time where people started hating Floyd Mayweather because he was so dominant. And Floyd, was his defense was so good. And he was just so good at what he did. We could agree on that. He was so good at what he did to where everyone's like, oh, that's boring. He's not just fighting because people want to see a bar fight. You know, we're risking our lives in there. And we've trained. What was the point of training each and every day and then going in and just slugging around and taking punches? You train to be able to make someone miss, to be able to control them in a certain way. That's what training is for. So you're not in there just taking punishment at will. And I do that better than anybody. And so whoever is saying that, they can say whatever they want. But I went out there. I kept working. I worked for 25 minutes. Uh, even when we were up against the cage standing, I mean, we, I worked for 25 minutes. I gave him opportunities to where he could have got off the cage. But, you know, he was there, he content staying there, and I kept working. And so whoever's saying that, they can say whatever they want, but come share the octagon with Jordan Masvidal for 25 minutes and let's see what you're going to say. Exactly. I absolutely agree. You know, people started hating Mayweather because of his defensive mastery in the ring, led to boring fights because he wasn't getting in the, in the brawls. Well, I would have to correct Usman on one thing. People, there's other reasons why people don't like Floyd Mayweather. I mean, beating up the mother of his children in front of his son, then threatening to, threatening him not to tell anybody how he treats women in general. I mean, that might be also be another reason why Floyd Mayweather is a, is a scumbag of a human being and why people don't like him. But you're right. His fighting style was something else that people might have found boring. But guess what? They sure did buy his pay-per-views, right? So that's, uh, that's one thing. And for those who are talking about Floyd Mayweather being boring, Marcus Madonna brought out a little bit of, uh, energy and entertainment out of Mayweather when he was bullying him like he did. So, you know, again, it takes it takes two to fight. And he was right in terms of risking their lives every time they step into the octagon. And the point that he made was the point of training and then going in there and slugging around, taking punches. Why would you train for something like that? You train not to get hit. You train to take the least amount of damages. He ain't a Mexican boxer. He ain't Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., you know, he ain't uh, he ain't one of those guys, you know, where he ain't Marco Antonio Barrera or Eric Morales, where it's like, hit me so I can go ahead and hit you two or three times. He ain't Diego Corrales. You go there not to get hit. 
You go there to make sure that you win that championship, you win that fight, make your money, and then move on. He worked him up against the cage for 25 minutes, even gave him opportunities off the cage, and he didn't take it. Sorry, that's the way it goes. And again, you want to call Usman a great but boring fighter? Go ahead, that's your business. But two of the greatest welterweight champions in the history of the sport has faced the same type of criticism. Because I remember George St. Pierre having to fight his critics when he was fighting Jake Shields and when he was fighting Dan Hardy and when he was fighting uh, Nick Diaz and when he was fighting all these guys. And he would win all these unanimous decisions and people would call him boring and he needs to train coaches and trainers because they're teaching him how to do the, you know, how to fight wrong and he's boring and all that kind of stuff. St. Pierre had to f- deal with the same shit that Kamara Usman is starting to deal with. And oh, by the way, who's one of the greatest, if not the greatest UFC fighter of all time when they get right down to it, when they talk about Demetrius Johnson, when they talk about Anderson Silva, when they talk about John Jones, when they talk about Fedor, when they talk about Jose Aldo, when they talk about all these people, who do they always mention, if not first, at least second? They mention that boring fighter who was going to ruin the sport, George St. Pierre. So don't give me that bullshit. Tyron Woodley was another guy. Who's going to go down as one of the greatest welterweights of all time? He was another guy who defended his title four times, who had to come up with the nonsense of why are you not more exciting and why aren't you knocking out people and all this kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't want to hear that nonsense. Pierre, George St. Pierre defended his title nine times, right? After he won the belt from Matt Serra in round two, after he, re, after he got revenge on that fluke that happened and he beat the shit out of Serra in, in front of his fans in Montreal. And the nine title defenses that St. Pierre had, he went all five rounds eight times. And we're speaking about fighting Dan Hardy, John Fitch, Josh Koshek, Jake Shields, Nick Diaz, Johnny Hendricks, Carlos Condit. You do what you need to do to win. And it takes two to tango. It takes two to tango. I tell you one thing, Johnny Hendricks put him through a war. He wasn't laying on him for 25 minutes, was he? So if you want to have George St. Pierre not lay on you for 25 minutes, do something to prevent him from doing that. Or else you're going to be taken down, you're going to be wrestled, you're going to lose. George St. Pierre is going to go out with his belt and people are going to whine and moan and complain that he's a Frenchman with a funny accent and he's a boring fighter. Fuck you, he's in the Hall of Fame, he's one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time, and he's a legend. George St. Pierre played the long game. I'm going to do what I need to do to win. I'm going to Lennox Lewis myself. In terms of being a fighter, I'm not going to go outside my comfort zone. I'm going to do what I need to do to win. And I'm going to walk out of this sport with my faculties, with my money, with my pride, with my dignity, and with my legacy being intact, being one of the greatest fighters in MMA history. Boom. Tyron Woodley, again, after KOing Robbie Lawler in the first round to win the belt, four of his title defenses, three of them went five rounds. And I remember people whining and moaning about his performance against... um Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, and I remember him whining and moaning, or people whining and moaning about Damian Maya. And I remember distinctly that he was on an MMA show. It wasn't Errol Hawani's show. It wasn't Luke Thomas's show. I forgot who it was. But it was on a show where it was a prominent MMA uh, writer, reporter, broadcaster, whatever. And they asked him. It was like, well, I mean, you know, people were starting to boo, and people were upset because, you know, of the Damian Maya thing. And, you know, you were just doing this, and you weren't standing up and fighting him, and you weren't doing this, that, and the other. There wasn't a criticism from those guys, but he would say, you know, time running out there, people are whining and complaining because of this, that, and the other. So it wasn't their direct objection, or they weren't the ones saying, you know, you're a boring fighter, or you should have done this, or you should have done that. They were just, you know, 
they just took a temperature of the MMA fight fans and what they were saying about that fight against Maya and brought that to Tyron Woodley to get his response. And Woodley was like, well, let me ask you a question, right? You just said that for the four, four, first four rounds of this fight against Damian Maya, that I was dominating, that I wasn't in any trouble, and then I was winning the fight handily. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, then why then in the fifth round am I going to abandon something to where I am dominating this guy? Why then in the fifth round of a five-round championship fight am I going to abandon what I was doing and dominating with to try to do something in terms to appease the fans that would put me in danger? The only way Maya could have won the fight is, is if I would have done what the fans asked me to do, right? By getting up and striking this guy and trying to knock him out. I'm in there with a jujitsu expert. I'm in there with a, a submissions expert, right? So if what I'm doing for the fourth, first four rounds is good enough to win the fight easily, then why in the hell am I going to abandon that in the last round to give this guy any mulcrum of a chance to win? Makes sense to me, right? Common sense to me, right? Should be common sense to you, right? So... Yeah, man, all of this nonsense about, oh, you know, he's boring, this is boring, that's boring. Kamara, you keep doing what you're doing. You're a star in my eye. I love the fact, I love his backstory. I love the fact that he's a well-spoken young man. I love the fact that he's not one of these guys who's going to try to go all Conor McGregor or go all Colby Covington and try to come up with some bullshit persona or try to come up with some bullshit personality to try to sell fights. He's a family guy. He loves his daughter. He speaks about his daughter. He represents his country. He does everything right. He's well-spoken. He's articulate. So for black folks out there, for black kids out there in communities where, you know, the language being spoken as far as articulation is concerned might be a little iffy on the block, in the neighborhood, at schools, whatever. They hear a black man who could whip your ass in two seconds, speak so articulately, speak so well, is fantastic, is great in that regard. So there ain't nothing wrong moving forward with Kamara Usman being the champion. We'll see what happens. Dana White's going to be sitting there talking about he's going to fight Gilbert Burns next, and then maybe afterwards Leon Edwards next. And Leon Edwards is another guy who deserves a chance at the championship belt more than Jorge Vasvidal, who just fought. I understand it was short notice. I understand all of those things. But uh, even after the fight, Jorge Masvidal, when, when giving the opportunity to make excuses for the loss he didn't at all i hate coming up short i'm not gonna make no excuses he was a better man tonight there were some areas where i i didn't give me enough credit and there were some areas where i felt uh with a better training camp i i could definitely surpass him and um i think i showed a lot of my wrestling on on six eight notice that uh i'm not too easy to take down or to hold down on the ground I made a lot of mistakes. I, I tried to fight in spots since I, I didn't feel my gas tank was at the greatest and he fought in better spots, you know, right? When I'd get loose and start to open up, he was able to clinch me up and take it back into his world. So I'm not going to take nothing away from him. He won fair and square. I'll do whatever it takes to get back in front of that man and, and compete again and, and get my hand raised. You got to love Jorge. Win or lose. That's a real man right there. That's a real man. 100% man. You know, when, when you're sitting there talking about Hey, there were some areas in which I didn't give him enough credit. There were other areas with a better training camp I could surpass, I can't surpass him. Tried to fight in spots because he felt his gas tank wasn't the greatest. He won fair and square, and he'll do whatever it takes to get back in front of him and get his hand raised. That's a real man after the fight. Not making excuses, not talking about, oh, I had to do this and I had to do that. Hey, you know what? That's, 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 that's right there what I'm talking about. Great job, Jorge Masvidal. More than the shit talking and more than the bullshit and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, and even later on during the fight, 
or during a press conference, you know, Jorge made the comment that, you know what, I'm glad, because afterwards that beef between him and Kamara was squashed. And he was talking about, look, you know, I don't, I'm not really into, you know, talking shit and doing all that kind of stuff and talk about people's ethnicity and religion and family members and all that kind of bullshit to sell a fight. I'm not all about that, you know. I mean, and it, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be, really. I mean, for me, I don't give a fuck about the trash talking. I don't give a fuck about calling names. I mean, the one reason why Muhammad Ali was so awesome was because Muhammad Ali was a unbelievable fucking fighter. It doesn't matter how great of a trash talker, all that kind of nonsense Ali was. If he couldn't fight, no one would give a fuck. You know, he would just be nothing more than a clown. You know, him changing from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali would have meant nothing if he didn't fight and beat Sonny Liston February 25th, 1964 in Miami, Florida. No one would give a fuck. So all of this stuff about you need to be loud and brash and braggadocious and all this kind of stuff to sell a fight, it shouldn't be that way. The number one thing should be your talent. And I don't I don't need a loud mouth. I don't need some loud mouth to help me get me interested in a fight. I don't need a backstory to help me get interested in a fight. Give me two competitors. Fighting for a championship should be enough. Fighting for a championship and the yearning and the desire and the dedication that it takes to become a champion and the type of heart and the type of character that you have to be to be a champion. For me, that's enough. And you have some, if you have two fighters, competitors who are highly skilled and who are highly motivated and have that animalistic instinct and desire and passion to go for that championship fight and are going to give it everything they've got to win that championship fight. I don't need somebody talking about someone's religion or someone's wife or some bullshit or pissing people off or talking about someone's ethnicity. So I'm glad that Jorge went on to say that shit in terms of, you know, when they fight again. That, that ain't going to be part of the promotional package to buy this fight. So even without all that nonsense, it really, it, it did sell. It, hopefully it, it sold well. So Dana White afterward gave his thoughts and feelings about the fight and Masvidal talking about taking the fight on short notice against Usman. This is uh, Dana White's thoughts and opinions about the fight. Played out the way that I thought it might. I thought that if, uh, if uh, you know, George didn't catch him, with something, you know, that's the way the fight would go. And, uh, you, you know, his takedown defense was unbelievable. You know, um, you know, he would get taken down and get back up against Usman, which is tough to do. Uh, he did it for five rounds and, you know, did what he could do. Usman's, Usman's a beast, man. Guy's a beast. I saw you talking with George uh, in the cage afterwards. You know, obviously we knew the result before it was read, but you were talking to him. What, what was the conversation? Like? He was saying, I'll be back, I'll be back. You know, I want another shot. What do you think? I mean, obviously you wouldn't go right back to that, of course, Gilbert Burns. But when, when a guy steps in on six days notice, flies halfway around the world, do you feel like maybe, hey, a win or two we could talk about? Well, it that, that was the fight we were working on. That's the fight he was training for. There was a two-week gap there where he wasn't the fight. But, I mean, he, I heard he was bringing in high-level wrestlers to train with and everything else. And I think you saw that tonight, you know. And uh, as far as his shape, if he wasn't in shape, he wouldn't be able to. He wouldn't be able to stop those takedowns, you know, going into third, fourth, fifth round. He stopped a lot of them, and he got back up when he was down. So, um, you know, he fought a good fight. And he was about right on that. If Jorge didn't catch him, the fight would go the way it did. Praised him on his takedown defense. And on the issue of taking the fight on six days' notice, he said that, you know, he was training for the fight. 
UFC was working on and he was uh, training for the fight, as I mentioned before. And he only took a two-week break when he wasn't going to fight, when he thought he wasn't going to fight Usman. And he brought in high-level wrestlers for his training camp. And he made, Dana White made a good point by basically saying, look, man, if he was out of shape and gassed and everything like that, he wouldn't have been able to successfully defend the takedowns if he didn't have a sufficient enough training camp. So moving on with Jorge, I, don't, I would have him fight Nate Diaz, uh, Nate Diaz next. I think that's something to where, you know, the shine for Masvidal has, uh, has gone away a little bit. It's not saying that he can't get it back. There's plenty of fighters and fighters out there. You have Colby Covington. You have uh, both Diaz brothers. I mean, Nick is up there talking about uh, or Nick or Nate. Oh, shit. I get those motherfuckers mixed up. Uh, Nate Diaz is just talking about, you know, he's going to, he hadn't fought in years, but what he did to his, what Jorge did to his little brother has motivated him to get back into the octagon and seek revenge. Who knows what the Diaz brothers, man? Who knows about what they're going to be all about? But, you know, we're speaking about those two guys. They're only going to fight big-time fights. So anytime one of the Diaz brothers steps into the octagon, you know he's going to make some good dough, and he's going to give a lot of shine to the person that he's going to be fighting against. So I would I would anticipate, possibly, that uh, Jorge's next fight, once he takes some time off, is going to be against... Nick Diaz or Nate Diaz, I'm quite sure that he's seeking revenge also. And for both of those guys, I don't know who else is out there. Now, Jorge made the point that I'll fight anybody they put in front of me to get back to the championship fight again to try to revenge the loss that I had against Usman. Well, my deal is that he is adamant that he will not fight Colby Covington. He called him a punk, you know, the guy with the uh, mega hat. The fact that, you know what, he got his jaw broke and he had 12 weeks of training for this guy and he still couldn't get the job done. You take a look at my face, there's no damage. I feel good in terms of no lingering injuries. I didn't break nothing. I didn't sprain nothing. I didn't pull anything. I didn't tear anything. And I only had a week to prepare. So for me to fight that punk, he was speaking of Covington, it wouldn't be worth his while because, again, he's beneath me. Well, that might be true, Jorge, but... If that's going to be your path to get back to fighting for the championship and do it, and that's their path to get back quickly to fighting for the championship, I'm quite sure then, and if the money's right, I'm quite sure then Jorge would be like, okay, I'll smash this guy, which I would absolutely love to see happen. So there's a lot of things. And for Usman, as I mentioned before, it's an easy, it's an easy solution or this is an easy answer to that question. Who's he going to be fighting next? Gilbert Burns was supposed to be the guy. He was supposed to fight originally at this pay-per-view. He pulled out because he caught COVID-19. And the managers for both, uh, the manager for Usman is the same manager for Gilbert Burns. They fight, they, you know, train at the same training camp. So this is something that should be pretty easy. Now, when they're going to fight, who knows? Usman was talking about, look, man, I was supposed to fight this guy in April. And then the COVID happened. And then I was supposed to fight this guy. And then I turn around and fight um, Masvidal. So basically, I haven't seen my daughter in two months plus. So I want to spend some time with her. You know, when I'm not training, when I'm not fighting, my whole deal in my life is, you know, hanging out with my daughter, watching her gymnastics and wrestling. So that's my deal with her. And I haven't seen her in two months and it's hard. So I get it. I understand it. So he wants to go ahead and spend some time. So and you want to have Gilbert Burns successfully recover from the COVID-19. So if I'm looking at the next title defense for Usman, 
I'm taking a look at him fighting Gilbert Burns. Maybe sometime, I would say, in January, February of 2021, somewhere around there. We don't know what the world is going to be looking like in terms of this pandemic. We don't know if they're going to be able to have some people in the stands. We don't know exactly where it's going to be happening. We don't even know if the fight's going to be even going to come off uh, due to the health concerns during that time. But the way things are looking right now, if I was to guesstimate uh, with everything that I heard, it's just a guesstimation. I haven't had a chance to talk to Kamara yet. <laughs> but um, I would guess, I would go on the assumption that Burns and Kamara are going to be fighting sometime early in the year 2021. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us speaking about what's going on with the UFC 251, Alexander Volkanovsky beat Max Holloway by split decision to retain his featherweight championship, the scores were 47-48, 48-47, 48-47, winner, and still featherweight champion of the world, Alexander Volkanovsky, Volkanovsky admitted the third round was close, but as you listen to the audio, he was confident that he won the last two rounds and then was confident that he won the fight. Yeah, well, obviously, fourth and fifth, I'm pretty confident. Most people would know I clearly won them. That third round was probably a little bit a little bit closer out of the three last ones. But, you know, obviously, the takedowns and, uh, you know, a lot of my, my shots, I feel like, were, were, were better shots anyway, to be quite honest. But then first two rounds, again, I'm, I'm a realist. I'll tell you, I believe that uh, you know, he, he started off well. But I come back from the, the third onwards. Again, I showed what, what champions are made of. This sport isn't easy. And sometimes you're going to be put in these positions. And only certain certain champions can dig deep like I, I did. And, uh, you know, again, I'm proud, of, proud of that I, I dug deep and got the job done and, and bring this back home to Australia and to my family. I wouldn't say doubt. You know what I mean? Obviously, my, again, I trust my corners. They were saying that it's up to that third round. You know, that third round was close. We think you've done enough. But we'll see. You know what I mean? So that's... Uh, that's they're realists, you know, they're going to tell me how it is. So I knew uh, we had to see how, how it goes. I was pretty pretty confident that I did enough in that third round. And, uh, you know, the judges thought, thought so as, as well. So, again, this is a crazy sport for you to get, come back from, uh, you know, being down and, you know, not being able to get yourself going and then waking yourself up and being like, come on, you've got a belt, you know, this, you've got to bring this belt back to your family. It shows you what type of a champion you are and shows you the heart, determination and, and that's what, that's what it's all about, you know what I mean? That's what, I'm all about that. I'm all about that hard work. I'm all about determination, you know, good morals, values, and all that type of stuff. And, you know, I, I got to show that tonight. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of that. So you can tell by the audio, he was confident that he clearly won the fourth and fifth round. The third round was closer than the last two. The first two rounds definitely were for Holloway. Started off well. He was proud of the way he dug deep to get the victory, bring the gold back to Australia. Oh, Australia, I still want to go there one of these days. And, and he mentioned before, the very hard and crazy sport shows what type of champion that he is, comes back to win, and I agree with him. It was a, I, You know what, I'm not that upset. I thought Holloway won the fight, but I also thought it was going to come down to the third round, 
And it was a situation where I thought clearly Holloway won rounds one and two. Volkanovski turned it on around one rounds four and five. I thought Volkanovski was landing the harder shots. I thought um, round three was going to be the decisive round. And they gave the Volkanovski. Again, it, it was one of those fights where you could go either way. You can't be mad one way or the other. But I can understand where Holloway would be angry. Just like if Holloway had won, I could understand Volkanovski being angry about him winning round three. So we don't know. We don't know moving forward. But now Volkanovski shows some real heart, man. Shows some real grit. I thought Holloway was fantastic in the fight. Unfortunately for him, that kind of leaves, leaves him in some limbo because... Very rarely, very, 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 very rarely, if not ever, do you ever see the UFC run it back three times, especially in a short span. There's other Ultimate Sterling, not Ultimate Sterling, excuse me, there's other fighters out there for Volkanovski to fight. And for Holloway, I don't know what you do, man. I mean, I don't know if he's still young and he's still blessed and he's still awesome, but I don't know where you go from here. I mean, it sucks. And you could even say, well, you take a look at the first two rounds that Holloway clearly won. And he won, Holloway won the first two rounds much more decisively than Volkanovski winning rounds four and five. Well, 10-9 is 10-9. It ain't 10-9. It ain't, he didn't, it's not like winning around 10 to 9.46, 10 to 9.27. And then losing 10 to 9.87. So let's round it all up to see who won. Nah. A 10-9 round is a 10-9 round. Whether you win it decisively or close. Doesn't matter. So, you know, that's the way it is. Did Holloway win his rounds much more decisively and clearly than Volkanovski won his rounds? Probably. Even though I would say that Volkanovski won rounds four and five. But it doesn't make any difference. That doesn't weigh into the decision on who wins a fight. Again, it came down to rounds three. And in a sport like MMA, when you're judging something like that, who knows? Again, I've always said, people who are watching the fight, the judges who are watching the fight at ringside, have a completely different view, a completely different look, a completely different angle in terms of the fight they're watching than what we are watching at home or watching on the television. They have a much different view. Of much, maybe they've seen punches. Maybe they've seen reactions. Maybe they've heard it. Maybe they felt it in terms of you know the amount, the 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 power of the shot, the effectiveness of the shot. They might look at someone's facial expression. They might overhear uh, something from the corner that might persuade them to give a round or to give that round to uh, a fighter. We don't know. We don't know. So again, I'm not going to sit here and one way or the other, rip the judges for that scoring uh, for the Volkanovski-Holloway fight because it was just too close. Round three could have gone either way. Who knows? But moving forward with Holloway, I don't know, man. Do, do you think he moves up the light heavyweight? Not, well, definitely doesn't move up the light heavyweight, but do you think he moves up the lightweight and try to fight those guys like Khabib and and and, um, and uh, poor, uh, Gaethy and Ferguson and those guys? I, I don't think so, man. Those are some big... Those are the big motherfuckers at uh, 155. When you're speaking about, you know, um, Khabib could move up to 170 if he had to. Gaethje is the big 155. Um, Tony Ferguson could move up to 170 if he had to. And you're taking a look at Holloway, who has difficulty getting down to 145. But as we saw with Poirier in that fight against Poirier, I mean, he's not going to have that advantage of being a big person for that division when he goes in there and fights these guys and we're speaking again about these contenders they're big for their 
they're big for their weight class. That takes away a lot of the advantage that Holloway had fighting at 145. So who knows? I think skill-wise, I think Holloway is one of the best fighters in the world, best mixed martial artists in the world in terms of fighting, in terms of his, his skills. But it was also a situation where you're speaking like about a guy in Volkanovski who just strength-wise can, can, can wear on you. Strength-wise can kind of put a little change in what you need to do. So moving forward, I don't know. I don't know. Let me end with this. Jose Aldo versus Peter Piotr Jan for the Bantamweight Championship. An extremely competitive fight for the first three rounds. You know, you really could have made the argument that Jose won rounds two and three if you wanted to. It wouldn't have been, like, unbelievable. I thought Jan was up going into the fourth two rounds to one. But if one of the judges had it for Jose, I wouldn't have been sitting there going, what? But um, in the you know, first couple of rounds, you know, Jose was awesome. Aldo was beating up Jan with the leg kicks. In fact, in the first round, put him to the canvas with a leg kick. Even even that, that leg kick was... So vicious that Uriah Faber was having flashbacks to the time that they fought in the WEC and Jose Aldo basically kicked Uriah Faber's legs out. But uh, yeah, so Jose was hanging in there. It was a highly competitive fight. It was a high-level fight. It was an awesome fight. But then round four happened. <laughs> and really, you can start seeing near the end of round three that Jose was starting to slow down for a little bit. And then again, round four happened. And this was the first time since fighting Frankie Edgar in 2016 that Jose had fought past three rounds. And you could tell because Jan started taking control. He started wearing Aldo down in the fourth. He bloodied his nose with a with solid ground and pound. And then the fifth round happened. And this is where it was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This is where it became uncomfortable. This is where it became sad. This is where I got angry. This is where I got very indignant with referee Leon Roberts. Stop the fucking fight! Fifth round, Jan knocked him down, rocked him with a, rocked him 12 seconds into the round with a hard straight right hand, or left hand I think it was. Then he took him down with a right cross eight seconds later. And then from the four minute and 40 second mark until a minute 37 left to go in the fight, Three straight minutes, Jan just beat the living shit out of this guy. Beat him, beat him, beat him. Had him in a crucifix position, side mounts on his back, was raining down hammer shots, elbow shots, any kind of shots. Man, that shit was very uncomfortable to watch. It was, there was no situation, there was no time that Jose was doing anything as far as trying to fight back or anything. It was just a matter of him covering up and trying his best to survive that beating he was taking. And Leon Roberts was just sitting there and letting him get his ass kicked. That was fucking horrible. That was horrible. Very disrespectful. How could you treat a legend like that? How could you treat Jose Aldo like that? It's beyond me. Now, Leon could have been sitting there talking about, well, he was moving, he was defending himself. No, he wasn't. He wasn't defending himself. First of all, I don't even give a damn if he was defending himself. How many times have we seen MMA fights where if a guy is not punching back, the referee immediately stops the fight? Or at least the referee goes and tells the fighter who's getting pummeled, hey, look, throw some punches, fight back, do something, or else I'm going to stop it. Fight back, or else I'm going to stop it. Fight back. Okay, it's over. It's done. It's done. Leon Roberts should have done that about... 
two minutes and 50 seconds before he stopped that fight. That was embarrassing. That was horrible. When you're talking about the discussion of the greatest MMA fighters of all time, Jose is in the same class as the greatest ever. He's there with Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre and John Jones and Fedor Emelianenko and Hoist Gracie and Daniel Cormier and Demetrius Johnson and Stevie Miocic, depending upon what he does August 10th or August 11th in a rematch in a trilogy fight against Cormier. Jose is right there. You don't treat the greatest fighter under 155 pounds ever. Sorry, that includes Max Holloway. You don't treat a true legend of the sport like that. You don't treat possibly the greatest Brazilian fighter who has ever lived besides Anderson Silva. You don't treat him like that. Now, Jan thought the stoppage in the fifth round was correct and the fifth round beat down with Jet to fight. In fact, after the fight, this is what he said. And then the finish, I've, I've seen some people say, hey, maybe maybe it could have been stopped a little bit earlier. What did you think about the end of the fight? Should it maybe have been stopped earlier? Я думаю, что все было правильно. Это чемпионский поединок, где дерутся два воина, чтобы не было после никаких разговоров. Преждевременная остановка, не преждевременная. Я думаю, что нужно биться до конца, пока уже рефери на сто процентов не будет уверен. I think everything was right. It's a championship fight between two warriors, so just not to leave any questions behind. You know, the referee made this choice. And then the finish. I've, I've seen some people say, hey, maybe maybe it could have been stopped a little bit earlier. What did you think about the end of the fight? Should it maybe have been stopped earlier? Должны ли бой остановить раньше? Я думаю, что все было правильно. Это чемпионский поединок, где дерутся два воина, чтобы не было после никаких разговоров. Преждевременная остановка, не преждевременная. Я думаю, что нужно биться до конца, пока уже рефери на сто процентов не будет уверен. I think everything was right. It's a championship fight between two warriors, so just not to leave any questions behind. You know, the referee made this choice. Championship fight between two two warriors, not leaving any doubt. Believe me, Piotr. There was no doubt. Once you took him down in about 20, 25 seconds of you of you beating the shit out of him in round five. Round four was pretty convincing that you were the better fighter. Round five, 95% of that beatdown was highly unnecessary. Now, I don't know what should happen with Leon Roberts, but man, you're taking someone's life into account when you let that beatdown happen. And we're not, everyone wants to equate that with death. I'm not even talking about death. I'm talking about long-term effects of a beatdown like that. I'm talking about CTE. I'm talking about um, pugilistic dementia. I'm talking about all of those things. I'm talking about a guy in Jose Aldo who has a, who's a father and a husband. His kids were watching. His wife was watching. His parents were watching. And you're going to let that man get beat down like that? And you're going to maybe make the excuse? I haven't heard Leon Roberts' excuse, but I'm quite sure, I'm just guessing here, that he would probably say he's a champion, you know, he's an all-time great. I'm going to give him every opportunity to get out of it. He was moving around a little bit. Bullshit. Because he is a great. Because he is a legend. Because he is a, one of the greatest of all time. You don't let that man have that type of punishment when all he's doing is just covering up and you have a strong, hungry, instant, uh, you know, killer instinct type of guy on him like Piotr Jan beating the shit out of him. That was fucking disrespectful and unbelievably bad. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, I don't know, man. When you talk about Jose Aldo, you know what? He said that he's going to come back stronger in the post-fight. He said that he's going to come back stronger. So he ain't going away. But, you know, since 2015, they're losing to McGregor. He's 3-5. and five. He's on a three-fight losing streak. He's 1-3 in championship fights since then. He beat 
Frankie Edgar for the interim belt, but he's lost twice to Max Holloway and now to Jan. He's no longer a championship contender. But I will say this, he's in a funny place because he's, as far as the UFC is concerned, he's no longer a championship contender, but he's far from being washed up. He's not like BJ Penn at the end of this, at the end of the rope here. No, he's not like what happened to Johnny Hendricks. He's not like a lot of these guys that you see in terms of hanging on too long. He's only 32 years old. I could have swore that Josie Aldo was like 35, 36. But he's been fighting for so long, he's only 32 years old. And when you take a look at his losses, five of his losses, I mean, he loses to Holloway twice. No shame in that game. He uses to Volkanovski. Definitely no shame in that game. He loses to Jan. No shame in that game. And he lost a split decision to Marlon Morales. So... You know, this is not a guy who's losing to nobodies. He does very well in three-round fights. You saw how competitive he was against Jan. Most people are talking about him saying that he needs to fight Dominic Cruz next. Okay, that would be interesting. But I think in a perfect world that, you know, he should move to Bellator. That's what I think. He should follow Leota Machida, go to Bellator and win a fight there. But, you know, hey, he's under contract with the UFC and... I'm quite sure the UFC can pay him a lot more money than Bellator. So, you know, I would like to see him move to Bellator. But, you know, I'm not Jose Aldo. But, uh, you know, if he stays in the, if he does stay in the UFC, which he's probably going to do, he should get the same type of treatment now moving forward that Shogun Hua gets from the, uh, from the UFC. What do I mean by that? Or Armando, let me explain. Many of the, you know, when you speak about Rua, he's mainly fighting in Brazil or overseas against fighters who are past their prime or, you know, good to decent MMA fighters. Shogun, who's one of my all-time favorites, Shogun is not the guy who's going to be fighting for a belt. He hadn't fought in the belt for for a while. He's just not good enough. But, you know, he hadn't fought in, in the United States since he lost to Chael Sonnen in uh, August of 2017, speaking of Rua. So the, his last nine fights have been in Australia and Germany, and he fought in Brazil six times. I would love to see... Jose Aldo get that type of treatment. Now, Rua's going to be fighting Antonio Rodrigo Noguera, a.k.a. Little Nog, um, in a few weeks here on Fight, Al- Fight Island in Abu Dhabi. When the world gets correct and Brazil is allowed to start having fights in their countries again, in their country again, there's only one country in Brazil, it's not plural, but in their country again, I think Jose Aldo would be a guy, he doesn't speak English, He's never really connected with the U.S. audience. So I would love to see him. He's beloved beyond belief in Brazil. So I would just love to see Jose, who's no longer a guy who's a worthy championship contender for any of the belts. I would love to see him still make a living, make a good living, still be a star, still be that guy who can, you know, do advertising and everything like that in his home country. And still make a great living being a mixed martial artist and minimize the damage that he could take as he goes into his mid-30s if he decides that he wants to continue fighting until that age. I would love to see him fight in Brazil once again, get that uh, Shogun, Mauricio Shogun Hua type of treatment. So, yeah, man. Yeah. That's uh, 251 was a good card, though. Really does. Thug Rose, brilliant performance. Jessica Andrade. Didn't you really think it's a matter of Rose? Thug Rose uh, is the type of fighter. She's a beautiful fighter to watch. I mean, she's one of those who can make a transition to boxing very easily because her technique and her skill is so good and is so high level. Nama Yunus was awesome. Now, 
Unfortunately, she was fighting somebody who hits like a truck. And I'm guessing that possibly if that fight went five rounds, that uh, Jessica would have caught her eventually, but it went three rounds. I thought the scoring was correct. I thought Naman Yunus won the fight 29-28. So with that, and then with Paige Van, Z- Paige Van Zandt, goodbye. Goodbye, Paige. Bye-bye. Go to Dancing with the Stars. Go to Bellator. The UFC doesn't need you. She got her ass kicked. Well, she didn't get her ass kicked, but she lost, what, in about 15 seconds? The UST, very nice of the USC and Dana White to kind of lower her, her, um, her negotiating powers, her, her buying power or whatever, in terms of how much she's worth when she goes to free agency by putting in, putting her in the octagon with someone who's, what, what, a plus 900 favorite. So that was strategically to be like, oh, you know, this is going to be Paige's last fight in the UFC. Let's make sure that uh, you know, we devalue her as much as possible, but maybe the opportunity of where she might come back to the UFC afterwards. She is a good-looking gal. I mean, they did their best to try to get her to be the next Ronda Rousey, you know, a halfway decent-looking white woman. So it's like, hey, let's get her out there. She's fun. She's bubbly. She's uh, dancing with the stars and this, that, and the other. But, you know, sorry, she can't fight as far as being at a high level to compete for a championship at the UFC. No shame in that game. Doesn't mean she ain't one tough cookie. Doesn't mean that she couldn't whip the shit out of 98 or 99% of the females walking this planet. But as far as being a professional fighter who's going to be competing for championships, Paige Van Zant doesn't have it. So, you know, see you later, Paige. As I mentioned before, you know, try free agency. If you can get some money, you know, due to your good looks, hey, you ain't going to look like that forever. As pretty as you are, you know, people do age. And with the aging process, when you're 50, 60, 70, you ain't going to be looking like you do now. So, you know, so uh, do what you need to do to make as much money as you possible. As possible, You still look good because, you know, as you get older, you can look good for your age, but you ain't ever going to look as good as you do now. <laughs> there, ain't no, there ain't no plastic surgery. There ain't no diet. There ain't no green drinks in the world that are going to make you look as good as you are now when you're 50 years old. So there you go. All right. I am out of here, man. I wanted to get into some type of entanglement. I'm going to table the Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith discussion about entanglement for my next podcast. That was a hoot. That was a hoot. My entanglement, my entanglement. I don't mean to make fun of Will Smith. Who's, you know, great. I don't, I don't know the man personally, but he seems to be a pretty nice guy. And, this, that, and the other, and, you know, hey, marriages is between a man and a woman, and that's none of our business, what they go through and everything, but some of this nonsense that she was saying, the entanglement, the entanglement, I could just, I was just kind of looking at the red table talk with her and, with her and Will, and again, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, I don't want to know, it's none of my business, but between them and their kids, hey, you know what? That's between y'all. I ain't going to, for me to comment or do anything like that. I don't know, you know, whatever. But from my point of view, when I watch that stuff, I always take a look and say, if I was in a relationship with that woman, or if I was in a relationship with any type of woman, and she came up to me with that kind of stuff, with that type of discussion, with that type of verbiage, I mean, how would I react I think the first thing I would be like, when she would start talking about entanglement, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Could you please speak English to me? I mean, with this long, like, well, you know, 
we just need to clear the air. And then at the end, it's all about love. And it's like, all right, can we just, what, what is it? You know, quit babbling, quit rambling. I'm the only one in this family who gets to ramble and gets to babble on and on and on incessantly. Haven't you heard any of my podcasts? Shit, I'm already at the two hour and 30, uh, 30 minute mark. You know, there's enough rambling and babbling coming from me to where you don't need to pick up that bad habit. What is it that you are wanting to tell me? Oh, yeah, I was sleeping with a guy 20 years my junior, four and a half years ago. Oh, my God. That whole thing was just ridiculous. But, hey, you know what? I want to get into that a little bit later. So, black Twitter. <laughs> so, we'll get into that a little bit later. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I want to thank you very much. Woo! What a ride, baby. What a ride. And the... Game between the Yankees and the Dodgers are still going on. It is almost near the end of the game. If this was a Yankee-Red Sox game 2019, I've been on the air now for two and a half hours. Right now, this game, if it was Red Sox-Yankees 2019, they'd be in the third inning right now. And they'd be each working on their fourth pitching change. So there, my last shot at baseball. So be good. Be good. Be kind. Be sweet to each other. Uh, I want to dedicate this podcast to a female who I have always loved. I still love. I hope she's doing well. I hope she's doing fantastic. I haven't spoken to her in about, I haven't spoken to her going on now 25 plus years, but she's still someone I think about every, every single day. She was fantastic. She was beautiful. She was wonderful. Whoever married her, man, way to go, way to go. And I'm quite sure kids are wonderful and beautiful and well-behaved and are doing great things in life. And I know she's doing great things in life, even though I haven't spoken to her. I don't know anything about her. I don't even know if she's still living, but if she's still living, I'm quite sure she's still beautiful. I'm quite sure that she's great. I'm quite sure that she's still wonderful. And I'm quite sure that her family, her husband and her kids are awesome also. So Felicia, Felisa, P-H-E-L-I-S-A, the female that I knew while I was living in the Bay Area. I still miss you. And I still love you. So there you go. That's my dedication for this podcast. So be good, be right, be strong, stay the way you are, help, learn, educate, listen, grow, and all of those things. Music. <laughs>